what the fuck, Emily? <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> this is the last time we can say these words into these microphones. Yeah, fuckity fuck fuck and fuckity fuck. I'm trying to think of something else to say, but that's the only one that's coming to mind. Mm. It's my favorite. Yeah. I don't really like a lot of the other ones. This is our last I am like a I am a fan non FCC observable uh uh airing of in real life for at least a little while. For at least nine months. At least nine months. Unless we put some like super special podcasty things out there. Yeah, maybe we just have to get all this profanity out of our system and so we just like release occasional little Why would we fucking do that? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. It seems excessive, yeah. doesn't it? Well, tonight we're going to be talking about someone that knows a lot about uh, talking dirty. (laughs) (laughs) Not like that. (laughs) No, actually, um, we're going to be talking uh, to someone who is like what they consider the human encyclopedia. Not this person considers it, but many people consider this person the human encyclopedia of comedy. We're talking about uh, WFMU's own, because he is WFMU family, mm-hmm. uh, Cliff Nesteroff. It's a really fun name to say. It really is. And he spells it differently, too. It's K-L-I-P-H. Yeah. Cliff. Mm-hmm. I love it. Yeah. I, uh, I learned about him through uh, Ken Friedman. Uh, he Station manager Ken Friedman? Uh-huh. That guy. Yeah. And, um, and he gave me his book, which is right here. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's called The Comedians. came out about three years ago. And Cliff has been unbelievably busy from uh, from this book and from all of his other amazing endeavors. So we're very fortunate. I think he's actually writing a book now. So mm-hmm. we're fortunate that we get him uh, on this show. And I think it's because we're FMU family. But this guy's been on Mark Marin three times. He's been, mm-hmm. uh, he works for Vice. He... Uh, the cover of his book um, features a quote, uh, John Hodgman. I don't know if you guys know John Hodgman, but like he's a pretty big deal. Calls this book essential. There's a million people that gave it. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Mark Marin, Mel Brooks, yeah. John Hodgman, someone named Leonard Malton. It's, <laughs> it's amazing. Who I don't know, so, but I probably would have. I don't want to keep him waiting, though. Because I told him 6.30, and it's 6.34. So now we're fashionably uh, late. Yes. And in exactly like one minute, we will just be late. Yeah. That's what my mom says. Okay. Five minutes is the grace period. So we'll give him a ringle-dingle. And um, the plan is that we're going to talk to him a little bit about uh, comedy, but very specific to this podcast. We're going to talk about the origins of Uh, blue comedy and Mm -hmm. working blue Mm -hmm. um dirty talk uh who he thinks are uh where it's all started from where it's going in this pc culture Mm -hmm. um and then uh after that we're going to be uh bringing in uh pat byrne who used to do the show prove it all night which was like a live variety show and he had a gazillion different guests on uh, a lot of them were stand-up comics Mm -hmm. And a lot of them work blue, mm-hmm. even on the air. Even even sometimes <laughs> on the radio. I remember dumping many, there many shows. There was a shows. lot of dumping, yeah. yeah. Um, talking about dumping, but not really like the dump button. No, yeah, <laughs> just talking about it. Yeah. Um, and then we're also going to have uh, like serial guester Nick Fierro um, on the show 
tonight as well, who's going to lend his comic expertise uh, to the discussion of uh, yeah. being a, a blue comedian. Not sad, just profane. <laughs> so this is, in real life, the blue episode. Fuck yeah. Yeah. It's, blue, we're blue, like blue, Picasso. Blue. It's our blue people. So, is this a podcast version of a live show that you do? <laughs> yes. Yeah, um, it's actually our last uh, podcast version before we go back onto the fall schedule. So uh-huh. that was kind of the idea that we had because it's going to be like the last FCC scrutinized episode to kind of... FCC yeah. non-scrutinized. Non-scrutinized. Like the last FCC <laughs> exempt episode. <laughs> exactly. So we thought we would... Um, we would dive into comedy, which um, our our show tends to jump into topics that we may not necessarily know much about, but we're very intrigued about. Um, mm-hmm. And then when we were talking about how this could be kind of a, a blue episode and kind of talk about the um, the dirtier side of comedy and be able to use all the curse words and everything that we want, uh, we started thinking about um, are there are there people that could talk about uh, comedy from a historical perspective? And when we started asking around this station, your name popped up in every conversation, <laughs> every conversation. So uh, you 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 have a very good reputation uh, within the walls of WFMU. <laughs> well, I, I owe my whole uh, career to uh, WFMU and to. Uh... Ken Friedman, because he gave me the chance to write whatever I wanted on their uh, website uh, without any conditions of any kind or any kind of uh, scrutiny of any kind, just full creative freedom. And that allowed me the uh, opportunity to be a terrible writer and slowly but surely learn how to become a good writer. So I owe uh, WFMU everything. Can I ask, um, so you worked on the Beware of the blog for those that um, aren't aren't aware of what that is. Um, can you kind of summarize it and, and when you were working on those uh, those mm-hmm. blog posts? Well, essentially, uh, Beware of the Blog was a web magazine. I usually use that phrase to describe it to people because blog, uh, you immediately lose all credibility <laughs> yeah. if you yeah. describe something as a blog. <laughs> so I always called it WFMU's web magazine. Um, but, I mean, it was very much the online version of WFMU. You can get all the um, archives from their website, go to the blog and find all kinds of incredible um, uh, rare audio, weird records, vanity pressings from the 50s and 60s. And uh, before I hooked up with WFMU, I used to collect records and go to thrift stores and find weird records. And every now and then you'd find like a really weird album. And then I would go home and Google uh, you know, about the record. And the only information that would come up about these records would be a post on the WFMU blog by somebody else. And so I thought, geez, I, I seem to have a like-minded sensibility to this place. So I emailed Ken Friedman and I said, how do you go about contributing to your website? And he wrote back and said, uh, I guess he just asked, but nobody's ever asked before. <laughs> so I was the first sort of outside of WFMU person to sort of um, um, hit them up. And, and he kind of brought me on board to write about uh, popular culture. I think he wanted me to write about comic books initially, and I did that once and then never again. Um, but mostly I was writing about weird records and weird television shows and sort of abstract or obscure things. 
And into that came um, sort of forgotten comedians, people who um, maybe were popular in the 50s and 60s, but then just kind of became forgotten. People like Arnold Stang and Joe E. Ross. I don't know if these names mean anything, but they were all sort of fringe characters. But when you see them on an old TV show or an old movie, you're immediately hypnotized, just fascinated by these weird sounding and looking characters and wondering, who is that person? So that's what I started writing for WFMU, were these sort of profiles um, about people. And unlike everywhere else on the internet, the comment section at WFMU was all uh, positive and really interesting. It really encouraged me, and I realized people were actually reading this stuff because WFMU already had this built-in audience that I was able to tap into. So um, I did that for, for several years and started putting more and more effort into the articles that I was writing for WFMU when I realized people were actually uh, paying attention. And so eventually I just started writing articles for WFMU's blog the same way I would have been writing if I was writing in a book, you know, really taking a lot of precise uh, uh, care with what I was working on and sourcing things and really working hard. And then Surely enough, um, because I put in all that effort, it really took notice with people who were interested in old comedy and old comedians or show business. And I was hearing from people in New York and Los Angeles all the time, even though I was living in uh, rural Canada, uh, working for WFMU. And so Mark Marin started reading my stuff and was talking about it on his show before he ever contacted me. And then after a couple of years, around 2012, he invited me to do... Uh, his podcast, WTF. And then once I did that, I got a book deal out of that and it changed my whole life. And it's been about three years since the really, really popular book, The Comedians, came out, right? The book came out in 2015 and I got the book deal to write it back in 2012. And I think I started contributing to WFMU back in 2006. The book, The Comedians, the the jacket front cover and inside has so much so many accolades from so many established comedians that it's it's incredible did you know that comedians were this interested in history uh yeah i mean i did stand-up for eight years and i started contributing to wfmu right around the time that i quit doing Mm stand-up um and when i was doing stand-up i was reading all the comedy books there were and i think most comedians did too but unfortunately most of them sucked there were very few good books about uh comedy in those days and i always had this theory that one of the reasons most of the books about comedy sucked was because they were written by people who had never done comedy and were not capable of doing comedy because they weren't funny and i having done stand up for eight years and then writing about comedians i feel like maybe there was a undercurrent of comprehension, even if it wasn't explicit, that there was an undercurrent of understanding about comedy and what the lifestyle of stand-up was that was missing from other um, sort of uh, explorations of comedy. So I think most people that are funny, most people that do stand-up, most people that are involved in comedy, uh, subconsciously, I think, as they read my book, might be able to uh, sense that, Hmm. that this person sort of gets it. And maybe that sounds really self-serving, I don't know. But (laughs) that, that I think, is why it appealed to... um, such a wide range of people in the industry like uh, Mel Brooks and Steve Martin and Bob Odenkirk and Meryl Marco and all these uh, wonderful people that I've gotten to know and become friends with because of the book and of them appreciating the book uh, uh, so much. So, no, I could have never anticipated that. But I think that's why it's so um, popular with 
with comedians themselves. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, well, what was what was your stand up like, and um, what made you decide to get out of it? Well, I had uh, two acts that I did. One that was just the same voice I'm talking in now, same person, same personality, me. And uh, nobody liked that act. It never really went very well. I, over the course of years, I developed material that works, but my my per- personality, um, I don't know, people didn't like it. But I also did another act that was a character, an old-fashioned, narcissistic, abrasive, vulgar, obnoxious comedian who basically insulted the audience, was indignant when a joke didn't work, and would berate everybody. And that act became super popular, really, really popular. I was performing it in Toronto and in Vancouver and got a ton of press. It was sort of my first little brush with success. You know, I have it all framed now, the magazine covers and stuff from that era, around 2001, 2002, 2003. Um, But it wasn't me. It was like a shticky character, and it sort of was sort of a monster that I created, this act that (laughs) did did really well, killed all the time, but I didn't really want to do it. I wanted people to like me, not this gimmicky shtick. Yeah. But when I did me, people would, uh, who were in the audience uh, would yell and demand the other act. Oh. So it sort of was eat- eating me away. But I did this this character who, I'm proud of it. I'm not embarrassed by it. It was uh, clever enough. It was this comedian who, I wrote street jokes. I, I kind of forced myself to write jokes that a comedian in the 1950s would maybe write, except this yeah. was 2003. So I had a an opening joke. I'd come up on stage and say, uh, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Shecky Gray. I am an internationally renowned and professional, professional comedian. I recently threw a party for all my impotent friends. But nobody came. Oh! <laughs> so I would write jokes like that. And after every joke, I would yell, oh, now we're working. Now we're working. And... And each step of the way, after each joke, the thing I yelled would get more and more absurd. So it started off, now we're cooking with gasoline, now we're working, uh, now we're poking holes in the Pope's condoms, and like that. It still works. (laughs) I don't know why. (laughs) And then eventually I would drop the jokes altogether and then just start screaming, now we're doing this, now we're doing that, now we're doing this, without stopping. I'd deliver about 20 or 30 of those in a row. I don't remember most of them. One that I remember always getting a big reaction was when Christopher Reeves was still alive and, and the line was, now I'm wishing that Keanu was the Reeves in a wheelchair. <laughs> Showstopper. So anyways, that was the act, and I did that for uh, several years, destroyed my voice doing it. Um, and it was a very popular act. It was also a very polarizing act because I learned something that I think people like Andrew Dice Clay and Steve Martin and others have learned, which is when you go up on stage in comedy and do a really obnoxious act, it tends to give the audience the license to be obnoxious in return. So I would be screaming and then the audience would be screaming. And there were shows where I couldn't do material at all. It would just be me getting yelled at and then me yelling back. And that would work. It would kill, but it was not really what I wanted to do. But anyway, so I did that for eight years approximately, and uh, never really made any money doing it, even though the act became popular. Vancouver is a very small uh, showbiz market, Mm -hmm. and the only way I could really make a living in show business was to parlay uh, my stand-up into writing. So I started doing gigs for 
CBC radio and stuff like that. And uh, writing turned out to be much more lucrative. Do you miss the scene at all? Yeah, I miss being around uh, uh, stand-up a little bit. If I go to a, a show, I cannot sit in the audience. I have to stand at the back of the room and just mm-hmm. sort of observe. I don't feel it's a very snobbish thing. I don't feel like I belong in the audience. It's just a really uncomfortable feeling for me. I like to be backstage or standing at the back of the room watching the show. A lot of that has to do with the fact that I'm so used to watching stand-up that I can kind of see through all the tricks. It's very transparent to me. And so a lot of the times when the audience is laughing, I'm not laughing, you know, because I see the mechanics of it. So I'm not a very fun person to have in a comedy audience. I'm not the kind of person that can go with a group of people because everybody else will be laughing and I'll be kind of stone-faced, sort of observing everything uh, analytically. Yeah, like that's funny, right? You say that's funny. That's funny. That's funny. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Well, more often it's me saying that's not funny. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's that's interesting. Um, Do you have like a particular type of comedy that that you like in particular or that you stay... um, with your finger on the pulse of particular types of comedy or particular people? Well, I pay attention and I have my favorites, but there's not a a style or a type, you know, funny is funny. Whatever makes you laugh is the type of comedy that you like. Mm -hmm. And whatever doesn't make you laugh is what you don't like. And you cannot um, pre-decide that or predetermine it. It just is, uh, it just happens reflexively. That's the thing about comedy it's like it's like a little hammer that the doctor hits you on the knee and you cannot control your foot from kicking out it just happens and laughter is the same thing if, if it strikes you as funny you cannot decide to laugh or decide to not laugh you just do or you don't you know so uh, my favorites are those who make me laugh just like everybody else in that way I feel like it's a really pure art form too because there's no like um, there there's no sort of like uh getting further ahead because you can like kind of buy your way into it or fake your way into it or um there's no you know what I mean like in the way that in the way that like I feel like bad actors can become really successful if they're like particularly good looking Mm -hmm. you know um comedy is like yeah you either make people laugh or you don't. <laughs> and Yeah, I mean, and, that, I mean, that being said, there are gimmicks that you could employ. And that thing I was saying about how I'll sit in the audience and not laugh, a lot of it has to do with, I can see how people are manipulating the audience with little magic tricks that are not apparent to the regular audience, but are crutches for every stand-up comedian. And the comedians that rely on crutches often kill. They often do great, but they're maligned and despised by their fellow comedians for doing cheap, easy, and lazy things. Now, a lot of uh, lay people think that like swearing is one of those things, but it's really not. It's more things like, um, I'll give you an example. I just told you how I was yelling those things in my act, and I would do 20 of those things in a row without stopping. That's a gimmick. If you talk really fast on stage without stopping for a full minute, inevitably the audience will burst out in an applause at the end. It doesn't matter what you're saying. It could make no sense whatsoever, but if you're on stage... You're explaining something. You go, I did this, and then I did that. Then I went there, and I went this, and da, 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 without pausing. When you stop, the audience erupts. And that's a big magic trick. That's a big gimmick that a lot of comedians do. And you can get that response whether it's funny or not. So there's, there's tricks you can employ that are not uh, discernible to the average uh, person, but the comedians know how to do it. However, those things will not necessarily make you famous. They will just kind of 
allow you to get a good response in the comedy club on a given night. And that's a timeless approach, meaning like if you go back into comedy, are there, is that a constant? Because because I know that when I go back and listen to old comics, I mean, there is such an evolution to what's funny that, you know, what someone finds funny right now and what someone, you know, looks back on to see what's funny. It just, it changes so quickly. It does, yes. Yeah, and things date really fast. And the weird mistake that a lot of people make is to think that things once upon a time were not funny and these people that were laughing at it must have been crazy right. and today everything's funny and it's not like that anymore but it's that's not true at all in 30 years from now the stuff that's really funny to most people today on television will suddenly seem dated and unfunny there's exceptions there's certain exceptions of things that are timeless mel brooks seems to supersede all of that, and he <laughs> remains funny. But that's very, very rare. Mm-hmm. Most things from the 50s, if they're still funny, they're funny because you have a grasp of the context in which they are made, and you're looking at it through the prism of the era. If you look at it uh, through the prism of today, it doesn't really translate. But that's true of your most favorite comedians today. 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years from now, people are going to be going, good Lord, like, Why did people think this was funny? So it's all about the context of the era that you're in. Yeah. That's really interesting because I think, um, like, the first thing that came to mind when you were saying that is um, the Thin Man movies, like William Powell and Myrna Loy together, I think are hysterical. Hysterical. Like, I, I can watch those over and over again, and I that is so my sense of humor. Like, I think it's, I think it's so funny. But I haven't really stopped to examine whether it's, like, based on having a, a, an understanding of context or whether it would be funny Well, I think, now. I think part of that is that if you watch the Thin Man movies, they're moored in um, characters, like real characters. You believe that William Powell and Myrna Loy are actually these people. You're convinced. Whereas if you watch um, a comedian like Burt Lahr or Ed Wynn, who was around at the same time as those Thin Man movies, they're wearing crazy costumes and wearing crazy hats. And that style of comedy doesn't feel as translatable. They're doing sort of character-based comedy. Whereas William Powell and Myrna Loy are doing sort of this witty repartee, but as human beings. Okay. So you buy into the concept that they're human beings rather than comic characters. Also, you might not necessarily go into the Thin Man the first time that you're watching it expecting it to be funny. You're probably expecting it to be a mystery yeah. or a romance or something like that. So you're pleasantly surprised at the fact that they have this witty repartee. So that really kind of um, is also an element. Expectations lack of expectations or over expectations can really affect um, your response to the comedy, how much you're going to laugh, how much you're not going to laugh. That's, I have to say, I'm really like impressed by how immediately you (laughs) had an analytical answer for like, oh, well, this is why. (laughs) Um, Yeah, well, I do, I I do a lot of acid, that's why. (laughs) But then when I go back, I mean, I think this is where we kind of pull in the conversation about working blue, because when I when I go back and, you know, people are like, oh, my gosh, like Don Rickles is hilarious. And then I'm like, I'm going to find a good clip of Don Rickles. And every single one in my in in my sensitive little PC world, I'm like listening to him like 
really, really, really pan on, you know, anyone who's black, anyone who's Jewish, anyone who's ugly, anyone who's fat. And, and I, and I'm not, I'm not getting it. And I can't get over my current PC-ness to appreciate what Don Rickles and people of that generation and before even just this is an example, like what he's providing. So I, I I don't know how you end up kind of freezing time to be able to think like go back and and listen to someone and not just get the heebie-jeebies when they're when they're talking about race in such a um, an obvious yeah. way. Yeah, I mean it really depends on um, you know Don Rickles became funny for a different reason later on than he was in the 50s and 60s. In the 50s and 60s, nobody had ever heard anybody talk like that so quickly. And so he was known as a great improviser on the stage in the 50s and 60s because he would insult whoever was in the audience. Yeah. Um, truly. Later in life, he had sort of stock lines. And uh, his friend, John Stamos, for some reason, he was best friends with John Stamos. John Stamos would always make like fun that of him. John because, Stamos? <laughs> yeah. Okay. You know, Rickles, would go on, Rickles would go on stage and say, uh, look at the black guy, blah, 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 and then do a line. But John Stamos and everybody else that was in the audience realized there's no, there wasn't a black guy there. And Rickles was just saying that because he always said that every uh-huh. single show. Um, whereas in the 50s and 60s, he didn't have the stock lines. He, he actually, if he saw somebody who was black, then he did a line about somebody who was black. And if there was no black person there, he did a line about somebody else. So he sort of changed. And he became this sort of icon later on as the only guy left who could still do that kind of material without outraging everybody and it becoming like a media story. You know, yeah. he was kind of given a pass for that reason because he was sort of this, this, uh, this icon. But I think, you know, if you go back and watch some of the stuff that he did, if you can find it, stand-up-wise in the early 60s, might have better, um, a better patience for it. Um, there's an episode of the Dean Martin show that he appeared on and they recreated his nightclub act on a soundstage and they invited all the celebrities they could find in 1966, 67, people like Rose Marie and Bob Newhart and whoever was Sammy on Sammy Davis Jr., yeah. <laughs> yeah, and that one's really good to watch because it was done for television, so it couldn't be quite as coarse. So it's not as um, potentially offensive to you, but it's also a good example of his speed. He was really known for being really fast. And uh, this is another gimmick in, in stand-up. Sometimes if you make a response to something in the crowd really quickly, it doesn't have to be that funny. The audience will laugh just based on the fact that you had a response that fast. That's how heckling works. You know, yeah. Non-comedians always ask comedians, oh, do you ever get heckled? What do you do when you get heckled? People who aren't in stand-up are, are absolutely um, fascinated with the, with the idea or the peril of being heckled. But if you're heckled, all you have to do is respond. That's all you have to do. It doesn't have to be funny. You just have to acknowledge it and say something back, and the audience is on your side. Often they'll laugh. Often they'll applaud. <laughs> and Don Rickles' act was sort of like that. He would say something that made no sense whatsoever, and because of the rhythm of it and the speed of it, uh, he would still get a reaction. But I understand what you're saying. I don't think it's, it's, it's you necessarily. Um, I think the people that were into Don Rickles got into him, you know, early on and stayed with him through his whole career. Whereas if you were to introduce Don Rickles today to somebody who's coming out of high school, I don't think they would really 
uh, appreciated <laughs> yeah. at all. In later years, the thing that was funny was the fact that it, he was such an old man saying these things. You know, it became funny for a whole different reason. It was the old guy saying outrageous things, sort of like George Burns. When he got old, it was funny yeah. because he was old. Even though these people were funny when they were young, it was like funny for a different reason. So who were the first, who were the first sort of like profane or, or dirty or blue comedians? When did this start and, coming around? And even probably to precede that, like what is the definition of working blue? Yeah, well, the definitions have, uh, have changed, obviously, over the decades. You know, movies, live shows, radio programs, they were all frequently censored in the teens, the 20s, and the 30s. And when we watch Turner Classic Movies or whatever, we think of it as a very um, classy, maybe squeaky clean type of era. But really, that's because people weren't allowed to say things in media. Yeah. So the vulgarity may have existed in real life. It wasn't allowed on the airwaves. And what was defined as obscene or blue was completely different in the 1920s to today. You could not say a word like uh, underwear. You could not say a word like belly button. These were considered vulgar and obscene and blue. Wait, and belly I told this story. Yeah, belly button was considered obscene. You <laughs> um, couldn't show a belly button. You couldn't show a belly yeah, you couldn't show a belly button, you couldn't say the word. But in the twenties, or even before that, I guess early nineteen hundreds, the word blue, working blue, came from vaudeville. Um, the Orpheum circuit was the biggest circuit in vaudeville and they also advertised themselves as family friendly and clean vaudeville for the whole family. And they kind of colluded with a number of the um, sort of potent uh, church figures of the era, the Billy Grahams of that era, to get their sort of approval and and have them talk on their Sunday sermons. You know, the Orpheum's vaudeville show is good for Christian people, good for the whole family type of thing. And they had an eagle eye over all their acts. The managers would take notes. If they heard somebody say something like belly button, they would write it down. Then they would put it in a blue envelope and send it backstage. Oh. And if you got a blue envelope... That meant that there was material you needed to remove from your axe because it was supposedly dirty. And that's where the phrase came from, blue material, was these blue envelopes in Vaudeville. That's so interesting. I still can't get over this belly button thing. That is just <laughs> so funny to me. Because it's just silly. It's like such a silly, cute little word. I don't know. But who would determine what was considered not socially acceptable? It was pretty arbitrary, but it was usually up to uh, the manager of the theater. And these managers were under the employ of the circuit. So Keith, or Keith Orpheum was a big vaudeville circuit in the 20s. Mm -hmm. Alexander Pantages was an, an impresario who had a circuit of Pantages theaters. And if you travel around America, you'll still find a Pantages theater every now and then. You'll still find an Orpheum theater every now and then. And they have these names because of they were vaudeville houses back at the turn of the century, and they were very, very powerful. They were the first sort of major show business corporations. At the same time that the Industrial uh, Revolution was creating the first oil barons and the first uh, railway titans, these vaudeville moguls emerged at the same time. And as they made more money, they bought out the competing theaters, so that eventually there was a monopoly in vaudeville with only three or four circuits taking up uh, the entire um, uh, region of the United States and Canada. 
And so they had a lot of power. So they sort of lorded this power over the comedians, over the theater managers. And these theater managers, if you managed an Orpheum theater, you weren't an independent proprietor. You worked for the Orpheum circuit. So mm-hmm. if their dictative came down that said, you're not allowed to mention uh, Mayor LaGuardia on the circuit. It's too much of a polarizing hot-button issue. Then um, that message would pass on all the theater managers. If they saw somebody do a joke about Mayor LaGuardia, they would send a blue envelope backstage. They cut out Mayor LaGuardia, and suddenly LaGuardia was considered a vulgar word. You know, So that's sort of how it worked. So what would happen if you rebelled against that blue envelope back in the day? And, well, you, and would be, you would be fired. So it wasn't like today where you go down to the comedy store, you do a stand-up set. Um, in those days, you signed a contract with the circuit. So you were under contract to the Orpheum anywhere from six months to three years. And that was a solid salary. It was a guaranteed income. You knew how much money you were going to make over the course of the year, and you could take your Orpheum Theater contract to a bank and lay down a mortgage uh, on a house or get a loan just based on that contract because they knew that meant you had a real steady income. So if you defied the rules of blue material and went up on stage and did whatever was considered vulgar, you were negating the um, uh, rules of your contract, you'd be fired immediately, and you'd have no income coming in whatsoever. And because these uh, vaudeville titans had a monopoly on all the vaudeville theaters, there'd be nowhere else for you to work. So it was really in the best interests of a comedian to follow the rules because that was their livelihood. So do you have, what would be the first instance of then comedians working kind of outside of that framework and being able to do these blue acts without fear of being fired? Well, it didn't happen until vaudeville kind of collapsed. Vaudeville, uh, a lot of historians give their different theories of why it fell through at the end of the 1920s. Some people say it was because the popularity of radio came in and you can get entertained at home. You didn't have to go out anymore. Some people said it was the advent of the talking motion picture was suddenly much more profitable and more appealing than an old school vaudeville show. But ultimately, the reason was because of the stock market crash and the Great Depression. A lot of theaters started to to shut down, and people, patrons, no longer had expendable income to go and watch a show. So in those days, you could build your own radio. You could build a crystal set. You just had to get the schematics from popular mechanics or whatever, and you could build your own little radio, have free entertainment at home. So that became the new wave. So the blue comedians, the real first blue comedians, came after vaudeville Um, disappeared. And they emerged in nightclubs in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s. All the new nightclubs that started up and became popular in the 30s and 40s, most of them had been speakeasies during the days of Prohibition. And when Prohibition ended, the mafia was stuck with all of these nightclubs, you know, that nobody wanted to go to anymore, because now you can get booze anywhere. So what did they do in order to salvage their investments? They put in these live, full-scale stage shows that included a comedian, a singer, an orchestra, maybe a dance team, four or five acts on a show, and people will come and have dinner and watch these shows. And that's sort of where you would find the original blue comedians. There was a guy named B.S. Pulley, and he called himself B.S. because it was supposed to be abbreviation for bullshit. So this guy, Bullshit Pulley, was really one of the first sort of dirty comedians of his era. He emerged in the late 30s performed throughout the 1940s. He had a routine he would do in his act. I think he started his act this way. He would 
start from the back of the room and walk towards the front of the stage. And in those days, you had something called the cigarette girl in old nightclubs. Sometimes you see it in old movies where they'll walk around. Yeah, exactly. So he was walking from the back of the stage with a little box of cigars. And he'd say, cigar, mister, cigar, lady, lady, you want a cigar? And he'd be holding this rectangle uh, cigar box sort of at waist level. He'd approach a woman, a woman, open up the lid of the cigar box, and in the cigar box he had cut a hole and his cock was in it. <laughs> so he would expose himself. Oh my God! It's the very first dick in a box. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And this is the 1940s. So, what the hell? Um, I had no idea that joke was so old. <laughs> yeah. I didn't know it was a joke. You don't know about the lonely. Really? Was it the Lonely Island that does that song? Uh, it's yeah. like yeah they did like the, the dick in a box song look it up i will <laughs> justin timberlake is on it it's amazing <laughs> anyway but yeah so bs pulley was one of the first and uh as you might expect he spent a lot of time in jail <laughs> not before his, his career during his career no he would kidding. get arrested for these things yeah the charges were usually uh obscenity or uh, staging an obscene show. That was often one of the charges. Staging an obscene show meant they could arrest the comedian, they could also uh, arrest the, the manager, and they could arrest the owner of the club and shut down the club altogether. And that happened quite often in the 1940s and early 50s, all pre-Lenny Bruce. Everybody talks about Lenny Bruce being one of the first, and he was one of the first to sort of be vulgar, but also with a point. All these other comedians came before in burlesque. There were women who did this, Rusty Warren and Belle Barth, who would get arrested for talking about sex on stage in nightclubs. And if you look through the history of show business and study it, look it up, you'll find all kinds of instances of comedians being arrested and nightclubs being shut down for, quote-unquote, staging an obscene show. So the 1940s and the early 50s are really when you get the first sort of wave of so-called blue comedians or dirty comedians. Yeah, I I read this in your book. In 1949, Lenny Ross was arrested in Lenox City on charges of being smutty. The State Department demanded yeah. Ross be dismissed and barred from working based on a previous conviction for using blue material and obscene language in his act, for which he served a prison term. What? Ross told the judge, I resort to smut only because the patrons demand it. That's... It blows my mind that, that, that he, he served, time served in prison. prison time because of what he said. Yeah, yeah, and th- that was not uncommon. The, the, the one struggle with uh, studying and researching this kind of thing is you don't know what they actually said. Yeah. Of, co- of course we know that it probably wasn't that bad because the uh, standards were so much different. But when the newspaper would report on this, they would just say the person was reported for uh, lewd material. The newspaper was too sanctimonious to quote what the person actually said. So it's very hard to determine why these people were going to prison. However, um, we can assume that it was probably for a pretty arbitrary reason. It was usually the judge that was determining this, not a, not a jury. So it was really based on also which city you were in. I think that Lanny Ross story was from Philadelphia, and Philadelphia was known as one of the most sanctimonious uh, cities at that time. Like if you dared to make fun of anything related to Catholicism or Protestantism, you would be immediately maligned. So a lot of it had to do with that. There's a famous story of Lenny Bruce during one of his trials. He was on trial for um, not just vulgarity, but blasphemy, for making fun of the church. 
he showed up on court in court one day and it was ash wednesday the judge had the cross on his forehead and all uh 12 members of the jury had the cross on their forehead from ash wednesday so there was no way he was going to win this case so there was a lot of that going on in those days as well that's that's insane so can I ask, I hope this isn't too off topic. I've been watching, I just finished the first season of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Um, mm-hmm. How, and I know like Lenny Bruce is like a recurring kind of primary character on that. How accurate is that in terms of a, cause it, or, or do you know, have you seen it? Um, I mean, it's fairly, uh, it's fairly accurate. You can only be so accurate in order mm-hmm. to make any period piece appeal to modern sensibilities you have to kind of um you have to adjust things for our modern sensibilities i haven't seen um the lenny bruce episodes i just saw the pilot but i will tell you this uh the creator of the marvelous mrs Maisel, a woman named amy sherman she had also created the gilmore girls mm-hmm. a decade ago her father's guy named don sherman don sherman was a stand-up comedian in the 1950s and 60s. I interviewed him um, before he died. He was an opening act for Dinah Washington, one of the first white comedians to ever play at the Apollo during that era, in the early 1960s. He was around these venues like the Copacabana in New York or the, the Coffee House Circuit, the Hungry Eye in San Francisco. He did all of those venues, and he had written a spec script about that um, stage of his career back in the 1980s. He never could sell it. And when I interviewed him, he was telling me about how he really thinks it should be turned into a TV show, this era of comedy. And after he passed, passed away, his daughter ended up selling this creation of hers, which is basically the same concept. So she's a very well-informed showrunner, very well-informed person. She was raised in that world. Yeah. Um, her father was Joey Bishop's head writer. Joey Bishop was the comedian in the Rat Pack, and he had his own talk show at one point, late-night mm-hmm. talk show. And Don Sherman was the head writer on that late night talk show. So um, I would I would have to say that the show is more accurate than not. But of course, it has to take some liberties right. and some licenses with certain things. Right. That's that is so interesting. I didn't know any of that. And that it makes a lot of sense with how she wrote Gilmore Girls, too, because a lot of the dialogue in that has um, this sort of like film noir kind of like witty, very quick back and forth. Uh, mm-hmm. between the characters that I think is kind of anachronistic. Like, you don't really see that kind of dialogue a whole lot in current stuff. But it, it makes sense if she was sort of informed by, like, comedic writing from the 50s or, or around mm-hmm. that time period. That's interesting. Hmm. So while we're talking about Lenny Bruce, um, that was a significant moment in in the conversation of, of uh, politically incorrect humor and... and Really, I mean, just just having spoken word about you know, about political things that weren't culturally acceptable. I mean, was that as big of a moment in stand-up um, as it seems from a historical perspective? It, it was, but it may not have been in the moment. You know, it really mm-hmm. depended what your sensibility was. This is the thing about any comedian who gets political. They're only funny if you agree with their politics. As soon as Dennis Miller starts talking about something that you don't agree with, suddenly you hate Dennis Miller. Oh my God, that's so true. (laughs) So it's true of even the people that are more beloved, like let's say John Stewart, who we would think would be universally adored, 
But no, not by people that are viciously right wing. They don't find him funny at all. And you hear the president even saying that today or his family saying, oh, so-and-so isn't funny, or Trump supporters saying the late-night shows are saying, I'm not funny anymore because all they do is Trump jokes. It's only not funny because they're making fun of the person they agree with politically. So Lenny Bruce was the same thing in the 50s and 60s. These sort of hipster types, people that were into jazz music, people that were subversive, people that rejected McCarthyism, the Red Scare, the Cold War, that kind of thing, people who had a sensibility that was more informed by the beat generation and literature and stuff like that, they loved Lenny Bruce. But if you didn't have the same sensibility as Lenny Bruce, he was despised, he was maligned. And you can find all kinds of newspaper articles and columns from that era saying that Lenny Bruce is just a flash in the pan, he'll be forgotten soon, you know, there's no substance to his act, he's just dirty for shock value, and he's better off ignored, and he's a nothing, he's a no-talent, blah, blah, blah. And of course, when he died, he became a bit of a martyr. And as soon as he died, there were suddenly like one-man shows of actors portraying Lenny Bruce, and movies were being made about Lenny Bruce, and books were coming out. So he became not forgotten, but even to the opposite extreme, lionized into a canon in a way that he could never actually live up to. Mm -hmm. So now, today, you try and introduce somebody to Lenny Bruce, if they know all the history behind it, They'll watch it and they'll go, well, what's the big deal? It doesn't seem funny to me at all. Because sometimes uh, the legend uh, becomes too big, you know, and there's no way that it could possibly deliver on the legend. So he had both opposite kind of swings of the pendulum where people thought he'd be forgotten tomorrow, no talent washed up, and then the opposite happened. He was like over-remembered in a way, mm. whereas other people who were also sort of filthy for that era women especially, like Rusty Warren and Bell Barth and this guy who I mentioned, B.S. Pulley, they're all forgotten. So there's sort of an imbalance there. But Lenny Bruce was very, very important at the time for people who really um, had the same sensibility because he was sort of a voice for the voiceless in the sort of conservative era of 1950s America. Here was this voice in the wilderness um, saying things about organized religion that a lot of people were thinking but couldn't say out loud without getting in trouble. Mm. And then we talk about folks like uh, George Carlin that can be pretty timeless with his rants. And to your point, the the yeah. quick the the speed of how he 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 relays the information is uh, is a lot about his delivery. But um, and he's actually the only one I came up with when we were trying to think of like sort of dirty comics that we were familiar with and i mean he he even like hardly is in some ways by even today's standards i don't know i'm i'm also not like super anyway um he was <laughs> he was the only one that i could really come up with that was one that i was familiar with mm. um he's yeah well richard pryor and george carlin were kind of the two guys who kind of emerged after Lenny Bruce, Lenny Bruce, I think, died in 60, 66, 67. And that's right around the time that uh, George Carlin and Richard Pryor were about to change their act uh, forever. Both of them had started in the same coffee house era where Lenny Bruce was a star in the early 60s, 63, 64, 65. George Carlin and Richard Pryor were coming up. And they were sort of cultivating their act for appearances on TV, like the Ed Sullivan Show. And you had to be very clean 
and you could not be controversial. They both wore um, beautiful kind of Brooks Brothers suits, well-tailored skinny ties, sort of a Mad Men era look to them. And they were very, very funny and very, very charming. But they weren't doing the type of comedy that Lenny Bruce was doing, and they weren't doing the type of comedy that they wanted to really do, even though it was funny. They were doing the type of comedy that would appeal to viewers of the Ed Sullivan show, what George Carlin, I think, used to call the blue hair set. You know, old ladies, mostly, would enjoy this type of comedy. But if you know anything about Richard Pryor and George Carlin, I know this sort of sounds sexist, but if you'll forgive me for a second, they were not kind of the type of act that would appeal to an old lady. They were a type of act that would appeal to a new kind of hipper, modern, drug-taking sensibility. (laughs) So as the 60s um, evolved and the late 60s started to happen, both George Carlin and Richard Pryor kind of joined that counterculture movement and freed themselves up. And just concurrently, they didn't even really do this intentionally, but they had the exact same career arc at the exact same time. They both did LSD for the first time in 1967, and you can see a distinct before and after in their acts. Suddenly, after they've both done acid, they both have long hair. You know, Richard Pryor suddenly grows this big mustache. George Carlin's wearing a tie-dyed shirt. George Carlin's talking about the Vietnam War. Richard Pryor's talking about racial discrimination. And in doing that, they started to get fired uh, from all their old gigs. Um, George Carlin was an opening act for the singer Al Martino, at the Frontier Hotel in Las Vegas. He said, shit on stage, he got fired. Richard Pryor was an opening act for somebody at the Aladdin Hotel in Las Vegas. He said, shit on stage, he got fired. So, Do you mean literally saying the word shit or that he's saying shit that got him in trouble? Oh, no, literally the word shit was getting them fired. I mean, in your contract, even today, if you do stand-up, sometimes if you do a private engagement, you get a contract and it'll say, you cannot say these words on stage, Mm -hmm. even still. And if you defy that contract, you don't get paid and you get fired. Mm. Um, so that, that still exists. So that's what they did in Vegas. Um, but they tended to evolve. And they did become, um, I don't know vulgar is the right word, but they used uh, language that they would use offstage, onstage. And that was a huge, huge shift. And Lenny Bruce kind of started that shift. It was the first generation where comedians sounded the same onstage as offstage. It used to be that you were two different people off stage and on stage, you know, Jack Benny portrayed this penurious character on stage and got big laughs because of it. But off stage, he was very generous. And somebody like, uh, um, oh, I don't know, Jackie Gleason or Milton Berle would be loud and boisterous on stage. They're shy off stage. Lenny Bruce sounded the same on stage and off stage. Talked about the same things on stage and off stage. George Carlin and Richard Pryor also did that. So it created this huge, huge shift. Now, in the late 80s, when comedians definitely became louder and more aggressive and more vulgar, Sam Kinison and Andrew Dice Clay were the two biggest comedians of the late 80s. George Carlin, who was a generation older than that, saw them and thought, shit, man, I better alter my act. Otherwise, I'm going to be put out to pasture and be seen as sort of this irrelevant old guy. So that was the point where you started to see George Carlin do those first HBO specials, Dressed in All Black, being much louder, much angrier, much more um, profane. And it was a strategic shift for George Carlin. He felt that he needed to compete in this new landscape of Sam Kinison and Andrew Dice Clay when people were a lot um, more abrasive and it seemed that the audiences were hungry for somebody who was more aggressive and, and hostile. 
So that was part of the reason George Carlin's, um, you might still think of George Carlin as a so-called uh, 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 vulgar or blue or profane comedian. It was a strategic choice. Uh-huh. That was going to be one of my questions. Is <laughs> Do comedians make a strategic choice to uh, be sort of this kind of comedian or that kind of comedian? Yeah. I, don't, um, I, I don't think that they do anymore. Okay. I think in Carlin's day, it was still new enough. The first times that we were hearing people say the F word on cable television. Now it's so common that mm-hmm. I don't know any comedian that intentionally inserts uh, swear words into their act, nor do I know any comedian that intentionally removes swear words from their act. If you swear a lot offstage, you're going to swear a lot on stage. Mm. If you rarely swear off stage, you'll rarely swear on stage. The only exception is if you have to do the Tonight Show or something like that, and they want that five-minute set that's network TV friendly. Then comedians will happily, uh, you know, purge their act of any f words, which I kind of find, I don't know if ironic is the right word, but everybody complains, oh, the PC culture, PC police, blah blah blah. But when it's in a comedian's best interest to censor themselves and do the Tonight Show, mm-hmm. they don't protest at all. Right. They willingly censor themselves. So I feel like that's sort of like a false uh, false thing, that whole PC thing. I don't think it's really a real thing. Well, yeah, I mean, and I was thinking about that too, because when I started reading about these incidents in your books where people are arrested and in jail for six months at a time, and then you think about today, especially in the college uh, circuit for comedy, that you know, this this PC culture, you know, you keep hearing from comic after comic that it's impossible to do the college circuit because the kids these days are so politically correct that nothing's that nothing kind of can be passed by them without scrutiny. But I, I, from your perspective on this, you're saying that it's it's a lot less dangerous, right? It's I mean, you may get well, a lot of yeah. more feedback, but it's a lot less dangerous today to talk about non-socially acceptable things. The whole thing about the college campus thing, the two people that said, I won't play a college campus anymore, was Jerry Seinfeld and Chris Rock. Mm -hmm. But it's not that, um, it's not like somebody said you can't play here. They themselves have said out loud, I won't play it. That's a lot different than censorship. If you decide not to perform somewhere, that doesn't mean the venue is censoring you. That's you deciding not to do it. So Mm -hmm. that's, that's one thing. The other thing is Jerry Seinfeld, who I'm a fan of, and Chris Rock, who I'm a fan of. Jerry Seinfeld, believe it or not, is almost 64 years old. Yeah. College students are not interested in a 64-year-old comedian. <laughs> the same thing happened in the late 60s with Bob Hope. Bob Hope had been the most popular comedian in America in the 1940s. By the late 60s, no college campus would have them unless he was a, or sorry, no college campus would have him unless the campus was. Um, like, uh, what's that, Jerry Falwell University, whatever the place is called. Um, So it was a generational shift, and that's what you're seeing today is a generational shift. It's the generation of people on college campuses want comedians that speak to them, that voice their style of voice. Um, The older somebody gets, the more out of touch they're going to be with that new generation, for better or for worse. There's lots of places for Jerry Seinfeld to work. He's not being censored whatsoever so Mm -hmm. it's all really a matter of perspective also mostly the people that complain about political correctness pc culture tend to be fascists uh, literally and so i kind of think it's really dangerous for people to conform to that phrase and that language when it's really uh, a piece of language that's being used against the adversaries of fascists 
So if the president says something racist and you object to it, somebody might say, oh, you're being too PC. No, no, I'm literally objecting to racism and fascism. Yeah. So it's really not um, in anybody's best interest to use that phrase anymore. Once it's been co-opted by the fascist movement, and those of us who aren't fascists really should uh, retreat and retire from using that phrase. Yeah. Also, the other people that you hear about complaining about college campuses, oh, you can't say anything on college campuses anymore, are people who are constantly being booked on college campuses. So these right-wingers like uh, Ben Shapiro or um, that guy uh, with the name I can't pronounce, Yanis. Uh, oh, Milo Yanis. Don't even give him Yana. a name. <laughs> oh, we can people... say that because it's a pot. Fuck that guy. Like, seriously, <laughs> yeah. fuck that guy. Yeah, fuck that guy. You can... All of them are being booked on college campuses. They all have the same booking agency. Yeah. They all have the same agent that gets them gigs on college campuses. Yeah, yeah. they can do it. I, I, yeah. I've been touring North America for the past several years with my book and History of Comedy. Not once have I been booked on a college campus. So I don't think anybody is censoring anybody. It's simply yeah. a matter of booking preference. But yeah. I think it's in their best interest to complain about college campuses because I really that's where intelligence comes from that's where people learn things that's where people read things and the more informed you are the more of an aversion you're going to have to these sort of ill-informed fascist modes of thought so it's a perfect target for them to attack hmm. anyways very well said yeah, yeah. and a completely really... different perspective than i was expecting i mean yeah you know i have heard and i think it was even a recent like comedian cars having coffee kind of thing so i guess jerry's still talking about this but yeah. it was um, that he's still like, oh, talking. everyone's so sensitive. You can't say anything. Well, anymore. just that they were saying, like how yeah. um, how protected these kids are, just coming right out of their 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 homes, where they kind of have a very very specific mindset that's you know very liberal, you know, and they think that the world is a perfect place, and then they find out that there's a grayer, more spectrumed you know view of the world, but they're not ready to accept that, and that was. That was what I was expecting you to say, but this is a really interesting perspective on things that I wasn't well, thinking con con about. Conform conformity is dangerous, no matter uh, what it is that you're conforming to. So when I started hearing this new surge in the phrase political correctness, you know, we'd heard about it in the 90s, but in the past five years, it's become this uh, tidal wave, people saying PC, PC, PC. Well, I'm like, well, what is it? What's the definition? Yeah. My friend Louis Black also complains about political correctness, says political correctness has no place in common. Fine. President Trump complains about political correctness. There's too much political correctness, says yeah. I'm not politically correct. I know Louis Black and President Trump don't agree on anything. <laughs> so if they're agreeing on this, then they're not talking about the same thing. Yes. So that's my big problem is that the definition of political correctness is in the eye of the beholder. And so a lot of fascists out there think people agree with them yeah. when they don't. So I think that's one of the big dangers. So whenever anybody uses the phrase, um, I think it's more important to determine what is it that they're actually saying? What is, what is the, their definition of that phrase? Because it seems that everybody has a different definition or nobody has a definition at all. Yeah. All they know is 
they're against it. Yeah, it's one of those phrases or, or terms that really no longer has a denotation. It only has connotation. Um, and yeah. so it's, yeah, yeah, as you say, I think maybe better to just like toss the whole phrase because it's <laughs> because it's so impossible to tell what anybody means by it because people use it to mean so many different things. Right. And historically, at one point, you know, blackface was funny and then there was a climate where it wasn't accepted anymore so you know in today's age it's kind of that same flow that's happening within comedy where it's like you know what no that's not acceptable anymore to say you know x y or z it's just not it's well, just evolution <laughs> evolution is always occurring and it's always easier for younger people to adjust to new modes of thought and evolution it's mm -hmm. always really hard for people that are older to adjust to evolution, no matter what it's about. So when the civil rights struggle was happening, those who are most opposed to the freedom, um, <clears throat> to, the, to, the, to the protest movements of CORE and SNCC and, and what have you, were older people. Older white people were the ones who were really opposed to it. And if you watch those freedom marches and see who's marching with these young black students, it's young white students. There's very few old white people in those freedom marches. So that's true today as well. If there's a new mode of thought where we're rejecting an old school style of sexism or whatever it is, it's usually young people that are at the forefront. Same thing happened in the late 60s. Late 60s, hippies were happening. People were talking about new modes of thought, black power, red power, Chicano power, uh, um, gay rights movement, women's liberation. Mm. It was all young people people in their 20s at the forefront of these movements that went on to change uh, America forever. And that remains true today. It's the young people that are at the forefront. So instead of shitting on the college students, I really think people should maybe listen to the college students. And that's a gross generalization to say these kids are too uh, nurtured or they're too, uh, uh, I mean, every kid is different. You know, there's, there's fascists on campus who are in their 20s and there's smart people on campus in their 20s. Everybody's different. But a social movement is usually uh, predicated by the young, not the old. Yeah, and it's sort of like the the sort of over, uh, I think, the, the reduction of like the millennial generation to being all mm -hmm. one way or all. And that, yeah. and that happens in every generation, as yeah. you know, whether it was rock and roll in the 50s. Oh, these kids, the juvenile delinquency is out of control. The late 60s, oh, these kids, they're smoking pot, they're hippie. In the 80s, you know, punk rock, you know, you, I'm sure you've both seen that episode of Chips with Eric Estrada where he walks through a punk rock club. You know, it's like every generation has this sort of paranoia about the I didn't young. see that episode, but yeah. I thought I watched every Chips episode. <laughs> That's funny. Okay, I have a, I have a question for you. Um, ha have you ever heard, as a historian, you're the only person that I hope knows who this person is. Um, have you ever heard of Bob Altman or Uncle Dirty? Yeah. You have? Okay. Yeah. So a couple summers ago, I was in my apartment in Montclair, and I go downstairs at like 6.30 in the morning to let my dogs out, and there's this man in my backyard with just boxer shorts on. And um, and I was like, "Can I help you?" And he's like, "I'm here to I'm I'm here. I'm visiting Joni." And I was like, "Oh, okay. That's my landlady." And he's like, "Her and I were an item for a very long time, but she hates me because I kept cheating on her. So, but we ended up staying friends for a long time." 
And I was like, oh, you know, my name is Kim. <laughs> What's your name? And he's like, people know me as Uncle Dirty. <laughs> and I was like, Uncle Dirty. And then he starts spitting off like that he's, you know, his daughter's name is Carlin, named after after George Carlin because they're best mm-hmm. friends and they would do this circuit together. Um and I went back upstairs and I Googled him and I was like, oh, okay, I have to go. I have to ask, ask for an interview from him. So I went and did an interview later that afternoon with Uncle Dirty. And then I came into the station and told everybody like, oh, my God. And he just kind of went along his like shtick from like the 1960s, like complete yeah. shtick of like from Chinese people all the way to like everything, everything that you would expect would come from Uncle Dirty. But when I mentioned it to people at the station, they were, there was one guy here that he said he found an Uncle Dirty record, played it, and was so horrified and offended by it that he threw it out the window of his apartment. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, it's just one of those weird things that like, you know, this this little time capsule of a comedian like landed in my backyard. <laughs> and uh and he is now passed, but you know, every so often we like to revisit, you know That's funny. Our uncle yeah, Dirty. I, I I heard from his daughter at some point. She emailed me. Sometimes I hear from people's families when I'm researching comedians yeah. and they'll ask me if I've researched their family member and I heard from Uncle Dirty's uh, daughter, uh uh I guess her name was Carlin. Julia Dirty. I can't remember. Okay. But she uh she contacted me and asked me about him and I looked into his, his history a little bit. You know, he was a mainstay of the East Village right at the tail end of the 60s, and he had a residency at some club there all throughout the 1970s. So anybody who was playing in the village in the 70s knew Uncle Dirty. But he was very, very New York-centric. He was never really known outside of New York. Mm-hmm. I didn't really know him until people started asking me about him. <laughs> uh, Mark Marin talks about him a lot. Um, but I don't know um, too much about him. Um, other than that. But as you mentioned, the WFMU DJ throwing the record out the window, I had like a vision of Johnny Fever with Venus Flytrap. It's close enough. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, this has been terrific. Um, A final question I have for you is just you mentioned that you were in the process of writing a book now. Um, Yeah. Would you mind us asking like what you're working on? Yeah, my new book is for Simon & Schuster. It'll probably be out in 2020, and it's the story of Native people in comedy. Um, You know, a lot of people, when they would interview me for my previous book, they would ask me lofty questions like, comedy comes from pain, doesn't it, Cliff? Is that why there's so many Jewish comedians? It's pain and suffering. Comedy comes from pain and suffering. Uh, uh, People with hard childhoods become great comedians. And that never sounded like a scientific theory to me. So I always kind of was skeptical of that. And I always thought, well, if it were true, then wouldn't we have more Native American comedians? Wouldn't we have more First Nations comics mm-hmm. around if, it, if comedy came from uh, struggle or came from pain or whatever? So my new book is an exploration of those Native comedians who did exist throughout history, some who became famous, far more who never became famous, and an explanation or exploration of why or why not and uh, chronicling the current Native stand-up scene. There's a whole contingent of comedians throughout North America that do a reservation circuit, do comedy on reservations, Native comedians, Native comedy for Native audiences, and many of them who are trying to cross over into white show business and the difficulty and struggle 
of trying to get uh, representation or being seen when you're native in uh, North America. So that's what my new book's about. Holy, how are you researching this? I know that for for the comedians, you were using a lot of variety uh, articles, but how does this how does this get researched? Uh, a number of different ways. Number of different ways. I mean, one person usually leads to another. You know, if you ever do a big project like this, often you'll interview one person, and then they'll ask you, "Well, have you talked to so and so?" Or have you heard of so-and-so? And you say no, and then somebody gives you a phone number or an email, and you kind of follow that trail. Um, for the historical stuff, I've been reading a lot of, uh, I have a newspaper search that I pay for online, old archival newspapers, and sometimes I'll type in keywords. Um, the word Indian is out of vogue for people of my generation, and certainly it's not in usage in Canada where I'm from. It's considered a slur there. In the United States, the word Indian, you still hear it, frequently, but the phrase really is native. But when I do a research project like this, I have to use the archaic phrases. So I'll just type in in quotes randomly, Indian comedian, Indian American comedian, Native American comedian, Indian comedy, anything like that to see what comes up. And that's been very helpful in researching uh, native performers in vaudeville. I've discovered a lot of people who would not come up on a Google search. So I have a number of sort of private archives that I'm able to search uh, digitally, but I do most of my research just from my laptop in my in my bedroom. I don't really go to libraries or leave the house because you don't really have to anymore, but that's generally how I've been doing it. I've also been attending a number of contemporary Native stand-up shows and sort of checking out the scene and uh, also reading a lot of books about Will Rogers, who is a famous name people know. They don't really know anything other than his Um, inexplicable catchphrase, I never met a man I didn't like, but he was a Native American and by far the most successful Native comedian of all time, and yet, despite all of his fame and infamy and the name Will Rogers still being known, most people don't know that he was an Indigenous performer. I had no idea. um, (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Did he have, what was his name before? Was he always Will Rogers, or was that kind of a... No, he was born Will Rogers, Uh but he was born in what in those days, in the 1800s, was called Indian Territory. Hmm. Indian Territory was essentially the very first reservation. It was five or six different tribes who were forcibly removed from their homelands in parts of North Carolina and Georgia, all commandeered uh, by gunpoint by federal troops under the orders of President Andrew Jackson and put in an area called Indian Territory. That's where Will Rogers was born. That's where he grew up. And then in 1908, Indian Territory got statehood and was renamed Oklahoma. Um, So he was, uh, you know, part of the lineage of the Trail of Tears. He wasn't that old, but his family had come to Oklahoma, to Indian Territory, um, under uh, gunpoint in the Trail of Tears. And so he was raised in that element in the 1880s. And so it really kind of informed his his life in an interesting way. And it's something that's sort of been neglected or overlooked throughout history, as most Native people and most Native issues have been in the history of the United States. It sounds incredible. You, I can't you wait. really are the human encyclopedia of comedy. <laughs> and I don't know how you retain it all. It's incredible. So. Psychedelics. I do a lot of ask. <laughs> you know, our last episode was about psychedelics, so I feel like this is like a perfect evolution from one episode yeah. <laughs> to, yeah. to the next. 
Um, is there a way that um, folks can can keep an eye on you and see what you're up to besides lots of writing in your bedroom? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Classic Show Business uh, or Classic Show Biz, C-L-A. I don't even know how to spell it. I've lost my abilities <laughs> to think, speak, and talk. Classic Showbiz is the moniker on Twitter. You can find me there. But uh, generally, I've disengaged from uh, the Internet altogether as, uh, as the world becomes more hostile mm. and retreated into the world of books instead. But you can find me on Twitter. That Smart nice. man. <laughs> I can't thank you enough for uh, for taking doing this interview time. and taking yeah. the time. It's it's much appreciated, and uh, you know you're always WFMU family to us. My pleasure. I'm happy to do anything for WFMU anytime. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Cliff. Take thank it easy. You. All right. Thank you. Yep. Bye. Bye. Here for great value drinking water. <laughs> the only water that's for drinking. I don't care what anybody says. You seen the ocean? Garbage. Lakes? Poo-ha. This is drinking water. Some water you take home to mama, this is recording. it. Pat, I can't Country hear you. goodness and green penis. <laughs> do you guys... That's, from, that's from the critic. Remember the critic, everyone? Yeah, I do. Wells bit. I didn't realize how funny the Orson Welles joke on the critic was until I started watching the Orson Welles commercials for champagne. Oh, yeah. I've never seen those. Orson Welles doing champagne commercials, the outtakes for that were pretty much just a belligerent or belligerent bug-eyed sweating Orson Welles going, ah, the French champagne. And they cut. And he can't take direction because he he's Orson Welles, so so he's just like... And he's doing the eyebrow, like the Michael Keaton eyebrows before <laughs> yeah. they were Michael Keaton eyebrows thing, where one's way up here and the other one's actually under his so, cheek. So there's, he's just like a dolly painting. So, so this, poor, know, no, I mean, this poor, like, young director is trying to, like, just get Orson to correctly get, deliver the line. Bring me my bowl of noodles. <laughs> he's like, but I did it right the first time. And See, like, this is your problem. And he won't take direction. This is why I just shoot my horse. Like, he's just nothing that's coming out of his mouth makes any sense. Yeah. But the critic did a parody of that. Of course, he was getting very, 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 very yeah. pissed. Really There's a French fry stuck in my beard. What luck. R.I.P., <laughs> <laughs> mm. baby. Also, while we're on the subject of dead celebrities, um, I understand that uh, Norm MacDonald famously portrayed Burt Reynolds as Turd Ferguson on Aww. Celebrity Jeopardy on respect, SNL. Respect, respect. Respect yeah. for Burt. This is not disrespectful to Burt in the least. <laughs> but if everyone could, could have not put the letters R.I.P. so close to Norm MacDonald's name on every post I saw today. Oh, my God. Twitter, yes. R.I.P. Turd Ferguson to me means R.I.P. Norm MacDonald, to which yeah. I, I... People people use that They overused so much. it, and I was like, all right. Come yeah. on. Like, Burt Reynolds was also like, Funny himself. Yeah, you, he was funny. You don't need you don't need hilarious. someone else to deliver it. The same person well, you, every to time. Put, that's how you know you made it. When when you die, they just put pictures of people who did impressions of you up because you were that famous. Yeah. Also, about a year or two ago, I almost bought Burt Reynolds' canoe. Did you? Yes. It was from Burt Reynolds. From Burt Reynolds himself. Shut the he fuck was, up. Are was, you serious? He was going. He was going broke. It's not a happy story. He was going broke, and oh. he had a giant Burt Reynolds yard sale. Um, Where? I, Where? At his house. It was online. 
back like, up. Where does he live? Nowhere now, but when he <laughs> did, <laughs> oh, <laughs> I, the I was at the, I was at working at the magazine when this happened, and the whole office shut down for a day. We were just on Burt Reynolds. Uh, like almost buying football jerseys that said Bert on the back. Not Reynolds, Bert. That's how you, another. <laughs> but the canoe from Deliverance was available. <gasps> Get out. The thing. Or at least he said it was the one. <laughs> well, that's the problem. So it's not really the one from Deliverance. That's where, that's where the story gets weird. It was they had damaged so many canoes during the filming that none made it to the end. So someone took a bunch of scrap canoes, probably 10 or 12, and just put them together to make this one freakish they canoe. A Franken canoe. Yes. <laughs> But so imagine, it kind of is the it canoe. Is, no, it it's just is. all the canoes. It's all the canoes. <laughs> it's all the canoes. It's actually way cooler. How to make an American quilt? Yeah, it's exactly like that. It's not at all. <laughs> Do you know that I had the like Ghostbusters that. card catalog in my house? No. Wait, the actual card catalog that yes. Janine. Yeah, went through, do like, you remember oh, Slimer oh, and the oh cards the shooting out? I wanted to library? be just like her wow. when Explain. I grew up. Yeah. Oh, uh, Annie Potts. Yeah. You shoot. Oh, that's that's top notch, Annie Potts. Styling. Oh. All right. Any day now, all of it. Designing what? Designing what? No. <laughs> no. Any but, day now. Yeah. Wait, so back to this card catalog. The, it's okay. I'm going to summarize here. Just no, a please. second. Who do we have in the room? Oh, yeah. <coughs> Five minutes and 40 seconds in. Yeah. Five minutes and 40 seconds in. Let me just, let me just uh, lay out who we have in the room here. <laughs> That's a good face, Pat. <laughs> <laughs> We've got... <laughs> that Is that your radio weird. face? I just, I just remember this. <laughs> I'm trying to wrangle the, the guests. <laughs> So we've got Pat Byrne Hi, in thanks. studio. Uh, hey, how are you? <laughs> Pat Byrne from Prove It All Night. Um, he's also doing uh, stand-up tomorrow, which I think this will actually be aired tomorrow morning. So if you guys are around. Oh, you guys have a late night. I apologize for that. That's okay. No, we're not editing this. <laughs> That's there, the plus about podcasts. We just oh, air them as they are. We're just airing it as it is. So where can they find you tomorrow? If you are listening and you're in the New York City area or greater tri-state and you want to come to Brooklyn, it's right above the Lorimer L train stop in uh, Williamsburg, Brooklyn. It's the Brick Theater. Uh, this is through the Brooklyn Comedy Collective. I'm doing a one-man show called Comic to Watch, but it's like watch in quotes like watch this guy because he's kind of crazy like that's the joke but uh it's kind of just one man sketch comedy and um weird bizarre things and nick even helped me write some jokes in it and uh he's he has a bit part and it'll be fun oh and josh gondelman from last week tonight a writer from the great mm-hmm. hbo show will be there doing stand-up as well he has like 10 minutes within my hour show so come on out it's five bucks and it's cheap what time Oh, 11 p.m. Oh, 11 nice. p.m. 11 p.m., the Brick Theater, $5. And um, if you know my full name at the door, I will pay for your cover. Really? So yeah. this guy's name is What's Nick Fierro. Do we have to yeah. name your <laughs> <laughs> It's the other guest name? that we have. I don't, maybe I have. Do I have one? I have to call my mom. Like a stage name? No, a middle name. <laughs> a middle name? <laughs> Offer rescinded. Wait, what's your middle name? It's the same middle name that every girl my generation has. There's Louise? two Anne. names. There's that name, Louise. middle name. Catherine? No, and then there's another on. one. It's short. Mm. Beth? One syllable? One syllable. One syllable. There's, there's mm. two middle names. Sounds like? Um, slim. Jim? Kim? <laughs> Kim? Wait, Kim's your first. You're well, Kim. Kim? No, I guess it doesn't rhyme. It's <laughs> okay. Maybe it doesn't rhyme exactly. <laughs> it's slim. 
<laughs> but I can't think of anything else that rhymes with Lynn. Oh, oh what? Win, sin, <laughs> shut up. Jin. I was on the spot. <laughs> Kim Lynn. <laughs> so I really I, want your name to be Kim Kim. So we invited <laughs> these two knuckleheads in. Um, we we had Medical a wonderful right. we had a wonderful interview with uh, Cliff Nesteroff, who talked about uh, the history of comedians. And we talked a little bit. Uh, we were able to use curse words. So we talked about kind of the history of the term working blue and some of the comedians that kind of uh, expanded beyond what was um, what was acceptable in <laughs> society and kind of evolved from there. It was fascinating. Really but we also wanted to talk to some folks that have kind of dipped their toe in the comedy world, stand up, and wanted to talk to you guys about like what's going on uh, from your perspectives <clears throat> and then just, you know, bullshit and get silly. So that's why you guys are here. Um, and we get to, it's the, it's the, the blue, I've been calling it our blue period. Yeah. This is our blue period because it's like the last blue episode that we get to do before we're back on the air and we're not allowed to curse anymore. So I wanted Congrats. to ask you about that. I've so gotten like, really comfy with you've it. Had, you've been able to curse since what, yes. June? Yes. June, yes. right? So much. So how, how did that affect the way? <laughs> how did that change the way you guys did your did your show or your dialogue? Did it take like were you trying to or? Uh, I was our first podcast episode. I had to like make myself use profanity. I remember. I was yeah. so scared. Oh right, yeah. I was so scared. I I I wasn't. Um, it felt so uncomfortable, and I, I was like, fun. "Oh, we're gonna have to edit this out." <laughs> <laughs> In fact, I'm going to be a little nervous going back on to, like, yeah. FCC airwaves, to be honest. You have to catch yourself. Yeah. Because I curse like a sailor, and I find that I want to correct this. Right. Because I feel like I'm I'm downgrading my uh, persona. I, I don't know. I feel like I, I sound trashy. The older I get I and the more I trashy. curse... What are you fucking talking about right now? I just you think you really sound like a tough guy. Like you're like a jersey. Like a, you're the tough one. You're the tough one. I'm the tough one. But but you also and I'm not. I mean, not not to like re- reveal behind the curtain, but like you you uh, have have a a somewhat of a of a job here at FMU, right? Like a like a a, a staff. I am I am the operations director here at WFMU, yes. mm-hmm. which is a title I named I a suit completely yeah. myself. It was, Ken's suggestion was facilities director, which made me sound like a garbage janitor. lady, it a janitor. Like so janitor. I evolved it to operations. That's right. great. But yeah. the reason I bring it up is because I find, at least with myself, like away from comedy, away from my life at home, even with my friends, the time that I curse the most is at work because my coworkers mm-hmm. like, you believe this shit? And I'm like, yeah, fucking unbelievable, right? Like, because they're all cursing, I'm cursing. So, yeah. so if, because you're here, yeah, and people curse here of upstairs, I'm assuming more often than not, does that lend itself to, because uh, you're like in your work environment here? That's a good question. I feel like I'm in my element. I feel like I can, you know, I worked at a big corporation before this where, you know, I'd have to edit the way I spoke. But mm-hmm. here, you know, I can. I can tell station manager Ken like a butthole story and it's and it lands, you know, like it's it's, preferable it's funny. Yeah. Like Kelly Jones was just, you know, she 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 talks some shit, man. Yeah, like she curses. It's just fantastic. Like so nice I feel like her. it's my element. Yeah. It's definitely like it nice to see these are my people. And Ken and Michelle all at once in the in the stairwell. And I 
high five them all as they were leaving. Oh, <laughs> they touched you? They don't touch me. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's been I a while, though. I haven't seen it. From, from, yeah, I think. I don't know. I panicked. <laughs> <laughs> but this you is a very. I didn't know I'd be meeting anyone new. I yeah. ran away. <laughs> this is a very open environment for that, and but it's so yeah. f- the, the irony is it's a radio station that is under FCC right, exactly. control, so uh, not control but guidance, supervision, guidance. supervision. Yeah, being so. that you had a radio show here and you had a live right. variety show, which you had, which almost tell me, me some yes. of your like uh, some of the. Some of the comedians that were on your show that kind of oh so oh, okay. expanded beyond. Oh, if God. if I the most memorable one, if, if I would have pulled the clip, this is what I should have. Instead oh, of recording sure. a piece, I, I should have pulled the clip. Yeah, because we had to just. I don't. I, I think James might have been bored. Off. Yes, he was. We switched to music. Well, he yeah. had to switch to music. Bless his heart. Yeah. Uh, and Who the unsung hero of every show was always the bored up. We had. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we had Des. James was our board op many times. Carol, um, oh that poor Nate. I poor think thing. Joe Duffy. If I'm, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm forgetting a, a, a bunch. I'm sorry, but like they were always the unsung hero. Yeah. So the most memorable time oh was a comedian by the name of Julia Rossi, amazing, who <laughs> confirmed over email a week or two prior. And she's I, a very good friend this of. This isn't even the this one. This isn't I'm even the of. one that I'm thinking oh, of. So it might not have been. It might not have been dead. I'm thinking of the detailed anal sex guy. Yeah. Oh. Was that uh, was, was that Seth Herzog? It was not. No. What is his? No, it was in detail. Which guy? I don't even know which Right. Anyway, go back to your your. Julie Very close friend of my lovely girlfriend Mindy Tucker. At, said, you know, she's a great stand-up. She lives in L.A. now. Uh, and, like, she's she's very good comedian. I wanted to have her on for a long time. She said, I'd love to do the show for a long time. We finally arranged it. She comes on the show. I confirm with her over email. Hey, like, you know, it's a radio station, so just heads up. Like, you know, do, do, do like, a set that you would do on TV. Like, do, like, treat this as, like, a set that you would, you know, have to maybe – censor yourself for in a creative way or like just do the you know material that's a little more friendly for you know a quote-unquote family audience oh no problem you know i understand got it and i don't know if it's like comedians step on stage and they forget because they're in front of an audience like if they were in this setting they'd remember because there's like headphones and like panels up and like glass that goes to another it just it looks like a studio in here right so I, I wonder if that is it, if it's just the power of suggestion. Or like downstairs is like a, a you're club. in an audience. It's a, it's club. a club. It feels yeah. like a club. And you're working sure. with the crowd and you want to make the crowd laugh, so you're going to do what you're going to do. Like I know, yeah, if, if, if one of us was on stage and we weren't allowed to curse and it wasn't going good and you have something funny that's maybe got a word in it that you're not allowed to say, you're gonna, I mean, you're going to give it a shot. But she gets uh, to see the stage manager. I don't, uh, on the side of the stage, like which is you, by the way, which is Kim, giving like, yeah. no, no, and it didn't matter. It the, did not in, matter in the moment. Horrifying, but you remember who we're talking about now, right? Yeah. I remember her, and yeah, I remember, I remember Des texting me and I telling think. me I'm going to a CD, and then just, yeah. and I told her at the end that was my only way of getting back to her, and I was like. Just so you know, your entire set didn't make it on the air because you did not follow a single FCC. Yeah, the dude I was thinking of was someone named Nick or some not you. Nick Nady. 
Yeah. No. No. Yeah. No. Nanny's saying in the karaoke show he didn't do anything. No. No, he did um the oh yeah he did the Japanese film. It was so good. No, maybe it wasn't. I don't know. I remember. But it's a tough. Start naming names now. Yeah. But so you've had you've had a a ton of comics on that had to adhere to FCC rules, which is impossible to. It's impossible to wrangle. It's impossible to wrangle, and that you know uh, that show almost killed me, but <laughs> I think it almost killed all of us at one point. But Bring it back to life, man. We look. When I'm, is it coming I, back? I, I'll say this: I miss I miss doing it like for the people that want to see it, and like it's a gives me great joy. But it just it yeah. takes so much to do yeah. that show. You know, between not just the board ops and you guys, no, no, you know, wrangling all that, wrangling pe- all those and people. but like we have kind of two weeks to just like turn right and turn around the show. So we all showed army purchases alone were through the roof. Right, we the all showed up at pizza three purchases? that day. Salvation Army purposes. Oh, purchases. <laughs> it was you know everyone in this room plus a crew of like twenty other people Easily. that were showing up. As early as 3 p.m. on any given Saturday oh, that we're I doing a show, that. and stay until one because it took yeah. that long to clean up. Sometimes later, so like, yeah, I loved it, but it was just like, all right, like we gotta rethink this a little bit or do this. It's you know, it I love amazing. to do the show again in some capacity. Nothing but, gold stays, Pony Boy. But going back <laughs> to your your question or your 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 story prompt with Julia, the interview is what got so interesting because we did the panel interview afterwards. And she was still, even though you had like <laughs> visually shown her signs, like all yeah. this stuff, she was so oblivious to it that I was like very polite to her on the couch desk scenario. But I was like, I was like, so you didn't get my email? And she was like, what are you talking about? And I was like, uh, and then I repeated what you had probably had already <laughs> told her when she was walking to the couch, which was like, I don't think we're on the air right now. And she, once again, what do you mean? I was like, "What? You you cursed like more than three times, more than however." Like she was like, "Did I?" Oh and my, I remember the whole audience being like, to? "Oh, oh, right, oh. yeah." The whole we was just <laughs> the, like, yeah. The audience. She's like, "I've so never gotten such so a reaction from just saying shit." So <laughs> like the audience so felt like they were being punched. To working blue, that when yeah. something like that would happen because that was a clean show and we're running a clean show for the three years we were live and the two years before that where we were just doing late night stuff. You were doing, you know, we're, you know, yeah. um, like you have to work clean, and you get it, it makes you kind of work around. You take a detour around language, and you want you want to learn how to like make you know little tongue in cheek references to stuff. So you you build this construct that's like a you know a, a quiet you know an FCC approved show. Right. So then when someone finally does curse, you become a kid again that hears a curse word. That's and exactly you're like, right. So like, you're like oh, oh, you know, oh. like I've never yeah. I've never reacted. My mom says fuck. My mom says fucking a. So she'll he won't say ass, but she'll say fuck. You know what I mean? Like my fucking, mother. No, fucking ass. I I always thought it meant fucking ass. But. My mother. Yes. My mother, Girls curses. Are fire. <laughs> my mother curses like a sailor. My m- I learned how to curse from hanging out with my mother and my grandfather as the a child. The best curses. Because my grandfather, like nobody curses like that man. And we're, we're talking like creative, creative curses. Cursing oh, too. the best. Example. Like, like, oh, I can't say any of them. They're really offensive. Oh, let me do it. Them. You say it as this in your old man voice. This is not any old man. I know, <laughs> that's like, why I'm interested. I'm, this I'm is a, an old man that used she a, knows shot, a double like, barrel shotgun to get rid of the squirrel problem in his front First of all, there's no such thing as a squirrel problem. And squirrel was a euphemism. <laughs> Second of all. <laughs> for the black people. Oh. Just so you know. <laughs> no. Oh. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, it it's, is. 
What an adorable <laughs> stereotype. <laughs> like, that's a weird... <laughs> it is the South, I mean. <laughs> Jesus. Can you guys describe what the anal sex story guy looked like? Because I want I'm still stuck on this. Can, Sorry, what? I want to find <laughs> out... <laughs> oh, oh. Yeah. I want to gay. He was no, gay. He, he was gay. Yeah. No, I just okay. thought he was he like was a big Jersey dude. Who would prove it all night? Guess right. Now. Like yeah. some like tough, like some like kind of tough Jersey looking dude. He was in the last like couple episodes of this show. I thought he was gay because wasn't he talking about gay sex? We're maybe talking about different people. It was How like was that oh, I think it was Nick Na- not not no, it I'm wasn't not, not Nick Nanny, uh Nick Turner. Yes, that's who I'm thinking. Was it, it was Nick, Nick Turner? Turner who cursed up a he blue? Was, he, he, he is not gay. He's heavily married. And no, <laughs> I didn't think he was okay. gay. Well, he's I think he's, Kim he's and gay I are talking butt. about different okay. people too. He's, I mean, gay people can be happily married too. But I, what I meant to say was, <laughs> straight people he's, stuff. Hey, it's he, a big old huge. Mush it all together, people. Mix all the colors of play together and just unity. We want unity. My mother is gay and happily. Married. There you go. <laughs> this brings That's up exactly what, what Cliff was talking about. Go you on. know, I, like you guys are are very careful about being what what we would consider politically correct. Which which Cliff actually said, "We're t- I'm taking that back. We're not using the word politically correct. We're saying that there's like a fascist world and a non-fascist world where it's like you're evolving towards what." should be appropriate conversation like you're not going to say something racist of course no, no right and like you know your audience you know is not interested in hearing something racist or really something blatantly um offensive because that's what you believe for right. sure but at the same time i remember prove it sort of towing that political correctness line for uh or, or sort of like playing with the idea that they knew like where their audience stood on certain yeah. political correctness issues that would... Um, he had a much younger audience too, Pat. Yeah, for sure. Well, I, no, it, 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 I mean, we had... Yeah, I I'm guess trying so. to figure out a way to say this, but... Yeah, we still don't know who's showing up. They were so young. They were the young people that yeah. were coming to your shows live. Okay, I thought you Which meant like the, the listeners themselves, because I'm yeah. like, I don't know who those people were staying home on Saturday night. <laughs> was it calling in? Uh, like on the, the studio... On the, the heroes, them. Uh, on the studio those, show. Those like, are the troops I salute. But I'm thinking of like characters that you, Nick, would play in particular. Yeah. That were yeah. sort of. <laughs> well, there's a lot of Neil. I was a robot, and Neil went elbow deep into my butt to fix me that one time, <laughs> and then I went like shoulder deep into but the couch he... for a rectal exam, and then my glove broke. Uh-huh. And I thought I was yeah, yeah, okay. but but none of that. Said, what were you? No, what were you thinking? You were gonna get? I didn't say bad words, so it was okay. <laughs> exactly. You were, you were, you were also the alt right donut. Uh, That's who I was thinking. But of. refused yeah. to have photos taken of him. <laughs> Wait, oh, wait, wait! No. I want, I want Emily. To I found the sash to this the other day when I was looking for a wig. Can you describe this one? Go please. ahead. I forgot this existed. Wait, I want in, a, in Emily's no please. recap words. Please. Did I write that? Yeah. Oh crap! We all kind of did though. Like, it was like was a there a room. clan hood involved with yeah. this? Yeah, it was a hood. Yeah, you had to make one. I made yeah. one. But you didn't want any photo evidence it. of you in a clan hood. It was our first Did show he? after the Trump administration had yes. taken office. Oh. It was a night like any it's other. All about Take it, Emily. 
<laughs> and I was, I remember, uh, I think this. Kim and I were actually recording this episode. There is footage of Nick that. making this yeah. costume on yes. the air yes. because we, I was sitting upstairs on the fourth floor with Nick as he was cutting <laughs> up like a pillowcase. And I was like, what you making, Nick? And he was like, I would rather not say, actually. <laughs> I don't think I want anybody to know that it's and me. And that was because 7 o'clock radio on Wednesday. <laughs> <laughs> your face clean while you're eating donuts i think or like so no one that was see the idea so the, yeah the shame uh, of eating donuts wouldn't be but of course i was playing a character that was um you know a big what was it the crispy cream crispy cream kids, kids. yeah crispy cream kids. <laughs> i came up with that acronym <laughs> <laughs> that was my contribution i love a good <laughs> i love a good inappropriate <laughs> oh acronym <laughs> that someone's unaware of like uh, that comes from like an old what Simpsons joke yeah. where where Krusty was. He was in front of a banner yeah. that actually said uh, it, it was it was a clip show, and he was like, "It's time for another Krusty comedy classic." And the banner dropped, <laughs> and he looked behind him, and he went, "Oh, that's no good." <laughs> so it was kind of you know it was. Uh, Take on that, rip off of that. I don't know. Oh, you know, a little bit, of, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. So it was the Krispy Kreme kids. Yep. And they were, and it was a character parade, which is, which is an old like Letterman and Conan vehicle to like just have a bunch of. So when you have one-liners yeah. come out, the premise mm-hmm. of the face. Yeah. And yeah. Nothing. And and a character co- walks out. I'm like here he is, come on the stage. The person does one line comes back out but then Nick's character was to come back out a few times throughout the show and he was based on what was that uh, asshole from the from the uh, Breitbart that like had like the Hitler youth haircut and and he got punched he was the first guy that got punched punched and everyone was like yeah Yeah. that guy it was based on that so like oh yeah and who punched me Neil punched me right Neil punched me and actually I had that haircut too it was super well timed (laughs) like to to John Lango our our drummer in the house band hitting the snare and and these guys were like real, really good musicians. One of the best parts of the show, and he hit that snare so on time that I was like, oh yeah, they're like pit musicians that have done musicals a bunch. So yeah. like this, it was no, that's the, the kind of thing that like made the show for me like oh, better than yeah. anything I could have done because it was like you know these 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 guys in the band and like. You know, everybody. But also, Neil talent. really hit me in the face, and I lost a tooth. No, you did. That's how good John Lango was. <laughs> <laughs> For a second, you oh. believed it. That's how good John Lango. But that was probably the most edgy thing maybe we did. Yeah. yeah. I mean, other than like just gross sex stuff, yeah. little butt stuff, little weird innuendo, innuendo, in your endo, and, and out the other. <laughs> <laughs> So what kind of stand-up do you, do you, well, I'll ask you, Nick, first, well, like, you are you in the stand-up circuit, or do yeah, you I'm, go I'm, and do I'm, I'm around, I'm going up as much as I can, trying to get booked. What kind of work do you do? What when kind I, of material? If I look back to when I really started going, after the, after the Was it, it like, night, during or, or after? We, I'd, when I'd did you get into it? I started doing stand-up before Prove It All Night, and I, I stopped for a long time, because I had no, I had no, no idea what I was doing. I had no voice, I had no ideas, nothing. And then when the show ended, I had built up, the momentum builds up. You're, you're excited to do a thing every month. So I had no outlet for it. So I just started writing down every dumb idea I had, which is mostly garbage puns. So if you go back two years 
to my set. It's literally just 31 line puns in a row that are garbage. Just like people read hey, Twitter hey, lines, which is the same Ray, thing. Hey, you guys think Raymore and Flanagan still love each other? Or you think they're sticking around, uh, staying together for the kids? <laughs> Furniture. Like the. It's <laughs> a dumb joke. And I, I was in love with it when I wrote it. And it turns my stomach. I'm in love with it, it now. It turns my stomach. <laughs> I don't like it. It's bad. Yeah, now, I know. But anyway, but no, now, and the thing about do, writing for the show for so long. I don't really, ha- I don't have to work blue. I don't, there's, it's e- it's too easy for someone to just go up there and yell fuck when they don't know what to say. Yeah. And I've cursed my entire, I've been a, like a, a filthy, filthy talking person my whole life. I have to dial it back because I've worked with children sometimes in my past and I, you know, <laughs> hang out with my family a lot. But uh, yeah, I, I don't, I don't work blue really. I mean, they're disgusting. Yeah. They're disgusting, awful attributes to what I'll say on stage, but it's not. It's not just to be shocking because it's dirty. It's because there's a weird connection to something. I like the dis- the, the you know the the juxtaposition of pleasant to horrific is is always funny because mm-hmm. it, it, it's like if if you had audio of the Queen of England taking a poop and she was struggling a little bit, <laughs> like that'd be funny because it's the Queen of England. Hey. Me doing it, it's not that great. <clears throat> So like having both the sweet you're and talking sour, about yeah. the Queen of the England taking a poop. And that's picture now you're thinking yeah. about the noises and it's going to sound like a puffin. Oh, well, yeah. and that's something go. that I think I, that's a dynamic I think Prove It played with a little bit too because it's set up in the framework of this sort of like wholesome uh, throwback to um, variety late shows, night variety yeah. shows like vaudeville and and also like old talk shows, right? Where like it's set up in this sort of like wholesome framework and then yeah. things will happen that you're like. Whoa. <laughs> and that's mostly like Pat. You you do the squeaky clean guys so well that like yeah, you, you, you play do anything, a really good foil. Remotely, mm-hmm. Like you know, you know, risque. It's amazing. That's why that works so well. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I just wanted to, you know, I realized, I think in this last year that one of the reasons I'm, like my my dream job in comedy that I will never get, is because it's a complete fantasy. It doesn't exist anymore. When I when I when it when it boils down to it, like it's like yeah, I'd love to get a late night TV writing job or something. It's always a dream, but no, it's it gets more specific than that. And I had to really rack my brain about it. My dream job is uh, staff writer on Late Night with Conan O'Brien in 1997. <laughs> like 13 year old me <laughs> is is like I'm just you know I just wanted I just wanted to write and host a 90s Conan show. Like I wrote a Conan packet before I knew how to do anything really. And I didn't know, I didn't, I was, I'm still not represented. Like I have no one I can send that to, <laughs> but the first Prove It All Night was that packet. So for three years, for three years and change, we got to do that. We got to make 90s Conan. And like the more research I, I did about that format, I was like, oh, like this is actually like, he carried the torch from Letterman. Like Letterman mm-hmm. was the first fucked up talk show that was sketch comedy. Like before he went to CBS, like th- that was the first borderline parody of a talk show mm-hmm. where it was like Johnny Carson was like the 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 king and the like standard right. and then this weirdo came on at 12:35 that was like a compl- like it was a sketch comedy version of this where like Chris Elliott and all these pe- brilliant brilliant people oh, and our own Andy man. Breckman would come out and do you know brilliant things and so like Conan really carried that torch I'm not trying to like I didn't know that Andy Breckman yeah. Oh yeah he was one of the original writers I, oh, I, yeah, geez. I knew about yeah. Yeah, him and him and uh and uh. I knew on Jim, Saturday Jim Downey Live, but I didn't know yeah. on Conan. So well, not not on Conan. On oh, Letterman. On Letterman, which yeah. is still that's even more impressive. Yeah, and he actually got to perform Sorry, like Conan. guitar, and I have a clip of it, oh, uh, which I don't no. have here. But <gasps> but anyway, like you know, the show. Who knows if I'll ever get any type of job? I hope so. Love to write comedy still if anyone's listening to this, but uh, like professionally to get paid, but like. 
that dream of writing a 90s style comedy show uh, Conan style late night show was it's kind of like come and gone even though Conan's still on the air and he still does a great job like like late night with Seth it's not quite the same yeah like love his humor but it's not quite the same Fallon's not quite the same so it's all like, about the little vignettes yeah, for YouTube exactly yeah. so they're, they're making a different type of show so like I'm like well we had this vehicle we had this outlet and I had this time slot so we did our best version of it, I think, and it was fun, and it had its moments, and sometimes we almost killed each other, but it was fun. <laughs> it was fun. And, and a lot of the comedians who worked on the show, um, you had a, a lot of talented comedians that worked on the show regularly um, <clears throat> that talked about it being a really good, totally free experimental outlet for them to use. I mean, I remember talking to Tabitha. That's how she talked about it. It was like it's, it's this outlet you get to use that um, – doesn't have any of the constrictions on it that working in a lot of the other outlets that um, a lot of comedians work in can find you, you talk, to. Them. Well, you talk about like literally getting in on the ground floor or something. Yeah. We started doing this show at Monty Hall when there basically almost wasn't a Monty Hall yet. Yeah. Like it, and it grew and grew, but we... They could do what we had free run, which is our yeah. just to explain. It's, it's our ground floor floor performance space that we right. have on the bottom floor of WFMU, yeah. and they have tons of live acts, a lot of musicians. Uh, yours was unique. It just yeah. there was nothing else like it. It was uh, once a month or once a it started out once a month. Well, did and it start quarterly, and then we went to once a month. Well, okay, you're right. It started quarterly, but then I got the time slot after the yes. second one. So then we we did monthly for over a year. And then we did every other month. Then we were we were asked to do every other month. Then we were asked to do quarterly. And then it kind of just we never really had a last show, which kind of stunk. Well, but <gasps> oh my gosh, it's so. like a it's like the the show <gasps> that like the last one didn't air because yeah. <gasps> you need a last you show. Do a last thinking about show. it, you know, Sean Lango is moving to L.A. in January, yeah. so we were talking about maybe just throwing something, even if it was just like. We have us, to, you know. But, but you heard but it this, here. This folks. wasn't supposed to be a promo night. Love, I love that. <laughs> I love that it's happening. I'll accept it. But I like. J- well, j- I think there's a lot of references to that sure. because of the comics that came through there, because of the format that you were using. You know, I mean, and having to work within FCC rules with a lot of comics that didn't necessarily work blue, but then also. You know, Nick was not a stand-up comic before that. You know, so Nick kind of took off to trying to, you know, find his own voice and, and to go great. through. It's not an inner monologue; it's an inner. Oh, we stole match. him completely. As soon as, <laughs> as soon as your show is over, yeah, we grab no, Nick yeah, because I, I, he's an untapped resource. I mean, would, that guy. I, well, thank you. That's very nice to say. He was our. I can't sleep ever, so <laughs> that's why him. Nick, Nick was our vampire in our puppet <laughs> show episode. Nick's stand-up is great. I must say. And I do go to open mics just as a joke writer to see, like, I don't really know if stand-up is something I want to, like, I don't want to, like, have an hour of me doing traditional stand-up. Like, my one-man show. Aren't you just doing tomorrow an hour of stand-up? No, no. It's it's it's, it's kind of like a one-man sketch show. It's okay. a kind of me, like, doing, like, I don't even know if I would call them characters, but just, like, weird audience interaction. And it's it's a different it's type a of show. Media. It's It's a mosaic. It's a sing a baseball song? <laughs> it's a Deco Pat Burn. But I'll always do open mics. Like, I'll always do them because it's a good practice and it's a good exercise to see because I'm always – because I consider myself a joke writer, so I will always try to write the joke and mm-hmm. perform the joke to see because the audience tells you what's funny. So Nick is a great stand-up, and he's come a long way, and, like – 
there was a couple times either before Proven Night or during Proven Night or early on in, in, in me seeing Nick go up where like I did see him work blue a li- little bit and I did see him like curse more than I normally did at a, at a set and it just didn't and I didn't give him the note because it just but I knew the I knew blue he was envelope you mean no it was just like it didn't seem natural for him it seemed like something was it was different about the room or the people that had gone up before him or he was just trying something out but it was just like it didn't suit him. You know, and then he didn't do it ever again, really like that. Oh, I think the art, if you can write a clean joke about school shooters or AIDS, you're doing good. If you can write a clean on that, if you can balance, like talking about something grotesque, if you can make someone, because you have to di- make people think that you're not going to make them laugh about something and then somehow figure out the, the long way home. No. To getting it back there and without taking the easy laugh yeah. and, and going, yeah, it's like for, it's like a candy yeah. land where you can skip the rainbow every now and again. Yeah, yeah. if you know, I don't know. I don't have a whole lot of comedy reference points because I didn't actually get That's into stand up comedy. Well, I didn't get into stand up comedy till I was like twenty five or twenty six. Like that was when I first started watching it or paying attention. So the analog that I have for this, just like bear with me for a second. Go ahead. Really early Sylvia Plath is is super like she writes for shock value Mm. all of her early poetry is just really meant to be to get the 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 easy like ooh, this is edgy and like avant-garde obviously because i'm talking about um i'm going to talk about sex in a really explicit way or i'm going to talk about death in a really explicit way or i'm going to use really huge words and people will think i'm edgy but if you go towards her later poetry it gets a lot more direct Mm. the language gets a lot more simplified um she doesn't use large words for the sake of using them and she has a much more interesting way of talking about death and sex and her relationship with her father that doesn't seem to be just for shock value it's actually to be interesting and that seems like sometimes i'll see comedians following a similar path where it's that that evolution goes sort of the same way mm, that makes sense yeah. yeah i think that um that's an outstanding reference i'm trying to <laughs> around I'm like you're exactly right thank you yeah <laughs> Dealing with, yeah. But I think, Nick, from people can't see you. Right. But I think there is something interesting about that dichotomy between what you look like and how. It's fun to trick people. Yeah. Like what what you're presenting and then you have this whole different side of you, which is a little bit more proper and Mm. a little bit more intellectual. And it's surprising that that's coming off. You know, when when people are um, maybe prejudging based off of what you... That's fine. That's bait. Yes, exactly. It's bait. The the worst thing you can ever do is hurt somebody, right? So by, by, you know, I'm never going to insult someone or make them... I'm never going to punch down, but... People are prepared for one thing when they see me, or when you know if if I'm if I'm coming at something from a weird angle, and then I bring it back to where it's it's it, yeah. it's safe and all encompassing back again. Like you know, it just it's fun to trick people because I don't know what makes people laugh, but I know I like being tricked. Like I never you never feel you know when someone plays a trick on you, you're humiliated a little bit, but it's also like oh you cared enough to fool me. You put a plan together <laughs> to, to make me oh look at this like a surprise. Like I have so many ongoing lies with my mom, my wife, my brother, my friends. Just lies I've told them over the years. Lies that I'll never tell them aren't lies. Little things that don't matter. I have people convinced. Well, I've been suspect. I've I've been. Oh, I got a, a million suspect going. of this. Go to, ahead. To, to, to your own. Like, yeah, yeah. I got a yeah. I got a bunch. I've fallen for this. 
since 15. What do you do to people? Um, I have um, one of my earliest ones in high school was I convinced my entire class that um, Hoboken, New Jersey. Hoboken, New Jersey is one mile squared. So my lie about it was that during the Hooverville days, during the Great Depression, it was a um, one square mile hobo camp. And in, in the vernacular of the time, a ken was a slang term for a camp. So it became it was um this this I permanent fell for this one it was a per, it was a permanent it was a per, fall, it became a permanent settlement now. during the, during the the forties <laughs> and then uh, or during the you know thirties or forties and then it slowly became um, governed and it became an actual town and it was a uh, town founded but this goes I I've had like I sort of like believe Australia. you even 15, though you just told me I, that I, it's I, not true. I convinced, I convinced uh, a few of my friends I changed my name legally in high school just because it was uh, yeah for like a month people were calling me Dave like it was. Just little stuff, little fun things. I forget half of them, and then I'll remember that I have a lie working with someone, and I won't know how to bring it up. They're little life bits. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're life bits, and we 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 didn't know what, that they were life bits, and because because we were just two dudes with weird sense of humor fucking with people, and Nick did it more than me. But we definitely we used to just show up. I remember one time, and I I'm just remembering this off the top of my head. One time, my parents uh, found my my dad and my stepmother found an official Path Train like worker shirt that they still wear um, at a yard sale in North Jersey, and like knew that I was like into wearing like gas station attendant shirts. Oh, you nineties boy! Yeah, as was (laughs) the late nineties. So so he 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 gets me. I was like, oh man, they didn't have any extra large hockey jerseys. So I wear this thing, and I go. I go out in it, and I, I decided we were going into Manhattan to go see, like, a punk show or something, and or maybe UCB or who knows. But our, me me uh, and Nick and our, our friend Jim, who is, like, my childhood best friend and also comedic genius that no one will ever know. I know. But we, I wore the – I wore – I decided to wear, like, navy blue dickies that I owned and black shoes and a belt, and I just tucked this in and decided, like, I was going to be – that. Nick was gonna harass me. In your mind, like you I was like a path attendant. In reality, you look, I look like, like a, a high school a ten year old. <laughs> yeah, like we're wearing a costume. But yeah, exactly. But Nick and I and Jim came up with this whole scenario that I was gonna ask them to like keep it down or like behave, and then they were gonna harass me. And Nick got so he's such a good. It's what I found out how good of an actor he was. He you was really so he got really in my face. It got so real with it. He was like, what? Fuck you, man. We're going to do what we want. And he got like this close to me, like, spitty. Like, he's like, you're going to tell me what to, like, and the old trade was, like, stopped. And, like, what? This went on, like, mind, this went on from. So my hair is probably just, like, Robert Smith out. And there's probably a lot of jangly crap all over me. This was from, like, Harrison path stop to like ninth street we did this this wow. show we did this show for like half an hour that's yeah. at least half an hour that's a long ride and then i had to go into the next train because i was like scared but also like laughing a little bit but then like went back to like almost first, tearing first up. of all the bit wasn't that i was just harassing you out of nowhere you were going to come up to me and jim and accuse us of trying to steal a fire extinguisher that was under the seat my memory came back immediately the second i was like bullshit no, you accused us of stealing a fire extinguisher and then i just with no <laughs> it's it's amazing what will come out of your mouth when you know you're not going to get hit <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so and right. I think that's a lot of what working blue is. You, no one can hit you. They can throw a beer bottle at you maybe if you're in the right club. Yeah. But like for the most part, you can get as insane as you want, and there's nothing people can really do back because at the end of the day, you're not hurting anybody unless you're inciting, you know, and hatred you're in or violence sort of against this them. safe space yeah. on the stage. Well, if, if you let everyone know this is just a goof, 
I would never hurt a fly, but here's something that I'm not supposed to say. Oh, man. Like that's really like <laughs> it's so to the excited. listeners, his butt it's was so, just wiggling. It, it took balls to do in public in hindsight because like so when you're on stage, it's pretend and people can follow along. But when you're like in real life, like if somebody, if somebody uh, had like a stun gun or a taser and they were just like wanted to wa- wanted to make a citizen's arrest, like what if that happened to us? And they right. like, and of course, in or hindsight, in hindsight, or Texas, we're both yeah. at the point at this point they we're just both ninety-pound mop-top idiots from New Jersey. Like, yeah, it would have taken just one their medium-sized adult to just go boop. No, <laughs> like the, the second reality kicked in and someone was like, shut up. We'd be like, I'm so sorry. We're so sorry. We're just messing around. We're just high school kids. We're having a nice time. It's, gonna, it's fine. So sorry. So sorry. But also, <laughs> yeah, we were high school. It was about a fight. I love we it. You guys are wonderful. Where, where were we? <laughs> I, had one, I had one thought uh, that I should mention as far as Prove It Night, Working Blue, and comedians who did the show. Like, yes, Nick Turner set was a hilarious <laughs> off-air experience. He's a nice yes, guy. Here he totally comes. totally off-air and, and, <laughs> and yes, Julia Rossi took us off-air. In a cl- I think Seth Herzog did too. Mm. Um, yeah, he did. In I the same that. show, in the, the same, same episode show. as Nick Turner. <laughs> Nick Turner. <laughs> I remember that, actually. Yeah. It was the exact same show. Super nice James guy. James was bored up for that one too, by the God way. Bless God you. bless you. Sorry, Des. James. <laughs> the board should have caught fire. But... Um, we have to mention this, like tip our hats to the great Michelle Wolf, who did oh who did God. prove it all night, who then went on to greatness. Uh, like God, thank yeah. thank God for her unapolo- unapologetic bri- like brilliance in in the in the wake of her. Uh, yeah. I don't know why they asked her, and that was what she what the first thing that that she said, which was great, but like her brilliant. Um, uh, press co- uh, state of the no. It was the White House. White House correspondent. Yeah, yeah. 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 Were there no, there were no curses in that set? That's a clean set. That's no, a clean set. It was blue as was, far as like so ruthlessness. Blue, right? like, yes, for sure. Yeah, and it was great. Clean though. That's the brilliance of that. And that's that what clean. you were saying earlier. Ah, like, yeah, is that the the skill that it takes right. to do an incredible set as a like cleanly without relying on the crutch of. and then the the polar opposite of that you think about people like you know Pryor and Carl and Lenny Bruce guys who just went totally uh, as, as into the extreme as they could but that's back when no one was so it was such so more it wasn't of an act of rebellion exactly but I my parents took me to see George Carlin when I was in fifth grade wow whoa they took me to see, I, it was it might have been sixth grade it was when You Were All Disease came out because I remember buying the CD there and mm-hmm. I listened to it until it didn't work anymore um, but at that point in Carlin's act, he was just going for, he was still doing his Carlin organizational, this, that, oh, if this is that thing, but it was much, he was working blue just cause he was like, fuck you. He was much more fuck you at that point. It's when we had his, he had a show on yeah. Fox, which is why we went, but it was in the, it was in the married with children era where yeah. like, it was just, you know, Al Bundy, Homer Simpson. Era. So it was a very gross, beautiful time for America. And I remember sitting there next to my dad and we, I never cursed in front of my parents. My brother cursed in front of my parents uh, from the moment he could talk. They would trick him into cursing. My, ha- my dad had a code word with my younger brother, eight years younger than me. He'd, he'd go, hey, say airplane. And my brother would go, shit, like as a baby. That was the code. And they had a couple of those. But I didn't curse in front of my parents. So whenever we were watching something gross or blue, like a horror movie or something really raunchy, I'd get super uncomfortable. But I like George Carlin so much that none of that's really there. So I'm just, I'm enthralled. And George Carlin goes on this tirade about guys with tattoos and guys that smoke cigars. And that was the summer my father 
both started smoking cigars and got his first tattoo. And I remember George Carlin's bit was about if you're smoking a cigar, you're just sucking on a big dick. That was the whole bit. And my dad just kind of leans over to me. I don't know if you could tell I was a little bit weird. But he leans, I remember him leaning over to me. And this is the first time I really think he, he talked to me like an equal and an adult. He looks at me and goes, you probably smoke cigars. <laughs> immediately dis- diffuse the entire thing and then we just oh relax and watch but their opening act was this squeaky clean folk music duo that just played these Which squeaky clean I forget their name I have their set list to this day this is up in Sussex County it was a super small thing super small Sussex County technical school auditorium it was nowhere what did your dad say what was the line he probably smoked cigars. About Cor- Carlin. Carlin, yeah. But that's accurate. He probably did. Yeah, I mean, but, the, uh, anyway. but, yeah, but yeah. his opening act was this squeaky clean folk duo that were hilarious because of the restraint. Like, the restraint can be hilarious. Like, Brett Davis does his Amish character. Right. And it's just, re- Joe Parra is restrained. Joe Parra, Joe Parra is, is all brilliant restrained. beyond yeah. belief. Yeah. And he's, so, he's reserved, and that's the humor in it. That, mm-hmm. you know, or like, um... You know, like Sasha Baron Cohen will make someone else be the vulgar person. Yeah, you know, right. you can egg that on from someone else if you're not blue. You can you can extract blue from the universe mm-hmm. if you're the thing that's so v- a vacuum of blue. Like there's no nothing blue about you. That's the brilliant. That can be the brilliance of it too. Mm-hmm. So like those two together, like that was an early, <coughs> early like holy shit. Yeah. Or like holy poop. Like depending on which, <laughs> which side you're going towards. I have you guys seen the the aristocrats? documentary mm-hmm. yeah so so my favorite my, i think the only memorable version of that of that routine that i saw in that entire uh documentary like the only one that i remember is i forget her name it's a female comedian and she she did the reversal of it and she was like yeah. and she was like <laughs> well there was there was this uh wonderful uh family act that went into a talent agency and you know the mother uh spun plates and the father uh did cartwheels and brush each other's hair yeah and they just they they go to sleep and they say i love you to each other and yeah and then and she, she did this whole the whole routine but, but squeaky clean and then the the talent agency at the end goes that's that's wonderful what do you guys call yourself and she says the cunt looking motherfuckers. It still it still gets but a laugh. That's why I like Sarah Silverman too for for that purpose where she it? kind of Wait, was it her? No, it wasn't her. It, was, it, wasn't, it wasn't. It wasn't Judy Gold. Janine Garofalo. No, no, it wasn't no. Janine. It, I, I, I forget her name, but it was it was brilliant because yeah. it was like yeah, that's the way that's that's, that's the way to tell a joke because you fucking flip it and it's it's so funny. You don't expect it at all. On 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 the topic of the aristocrats and that. I, I implore everyone, I don't know how much longer this man, hopefully he'll be alive for decades, but if you ever get a chance, most people don't think to go see Gilbert Gottfried. And he's one of those yeah. people that can work filthy, filthy, filthy blue. Like, I almost sent you the roast he did of George Takai. I couldn't and handle the clips that you sent. I'm so sorry. <laughs> and that was not... Okay. I so mean, you asked me for, for gross that stuff. milky tear yes, line you did. made oh, me Sean, almost Oh, Sean Rouse. Rouse. I, Sean Rouse. R.I.P. Sean. I want to describe what's happening. Emily just wrapped oh, herself just in, a in a curtain. Right. I no. could not believe okay. I was embarrassed for you. You should be. So Gilbert Gottfried did a roast for George Takai, and if anybody looks it up, it is the most disgusting, violent, angry thing you've ever heard. And George Takai is there, like almost peeing. He's laughing so hard. 
But Gilbert <laughs> can also work completely clean. I've seen him work so many times where his first 15, 20 minutes, he doesn't say a bad word. He, he did a bit where he had a stack of napkins and he's pretending they're different things. And it's the funniest thing in the world. But that's what I would prefer. To like to not both. to, yeah, yeah, to be able to do both, but even harder to be able to do the, the non material. Because, you know, he, he took, you know, he was the parrot in, in the, in the uh, Aladdin. <laughs> and then the bird. Yeah. Oh yeah, my well. god, shut up, he was! Oh, come on. How Two birds! He played, he played a bird that, uh... He was the Affleck duck, the and, Affleck the duck and he lost his Shit job because he, ma- he made a, he, because he made a, a blue <laughs> joke! He made a joke about the tsunami in Japan and got fired. Did you know Bob Saget worked blue, Emily? I did know about this! <laughs> I just found out about this! Oh my god, his stuff is filthy! It's it disgusting, is, but, but it's also not... It's not funny, funny because he's just trying too hard to be exactly. gross. Yeah. His, he was his like that before shtick. he was casted. He, in his defense, he was right. a stand-up and he did work blue. Exactly. Before Full House. So before he's just Full continuing. House. Yeah. Was the joke. He wanted but to prove so that he directed wrote. Dirty Work also, which yeah. is one of my favorite. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and you had a Don Rickles reference as far as one of Don Rickles, right? Yeah. As far as like one of your favorites, which then I'm like, you know what? I only know Don Rickles from like my 80s world of like sitcoms. Yeah. So then I like Googled some Don Rickles stuff and I'm like, all he's doing is like just going through the audience and like, yeah. you're black, blah, 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 blah. You're yeah. Jewish, blah, blah, blah. You're ugly, blah, blah, blah. You're fa-. And I was like, I don't, this is from Pat Byrne. <laughs> like, what did you, did no, you Don like, Rickles, tell me? Boy Scout, the Don, right? the, <laughs> tell just, me, Boy Scout. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's just the, he's the king of crowd work. And he could work, like if he was in this room right now, he'd call all, all of us stupid or dummies. And he would just <laughs> run his mouth. Some of the insults don't even make sense, especially as he got older. Like if you watch that clip from from Dirty Work, that's working on stereotypes that are really old. Yeah, Swede. <laughs> <laughs> I just my my favorite my favorite Don Rickles is so that because like, it was our generation, but that 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 it, it introduced yeah. him to our generation was his scene his scene in Dirty Work, where he 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 spots he spots Artie Lang and he just goes. He's like supposed to be the 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 manager of this movie theater that Norm Macdonald and Artie Lang had to like settle on a job to, by getting, and and he looks he looks at his new hires and he sees Artie Lang. He goes, "Well, there you are, Tubby." He's <laughs> <laughs> like, and he just walks out. He's like, he goes, he just goes, "Look at you," <laughs> and he just, he just rips him a new one for like. Two minutes of the film, and he like he, he screams at his stomach, and he goes, "Are you having a good time down there, ice cream?" And he's just like, "It's, it's the stupidest." Now, no, so, so think about that. Think about how unfunny that bit would be if it was John Hamm instead of Don Rickles. It's funny because it's John, it's Don Rickles. He's yeah. bald and well, because old you and also give him a pass because he's like you know your grandparents' generation of racists. Yeah. He's not punching, yeah. down. He's not punching <laughs> down. He's it's either just a like your grandfather punched down exactly if it was john ham being like hey tubby you'd be like ew mr no like you're better than this yeah no one's saying you're better than this to don rickles no just exactly sweaty, angry don rickles that oh, was wow. my grandfather's justification by the way we want to hear we're going like, to end with your grandfather's joke oh my god i can't i can't wait to hear this can joke. you write it and have one of these yeah. delivers yeah. but i wanted to say that that one of the one of don's one of don's like <laughs> rest in peace <laughs> one of his insults in that scene he turns to Norm Macdonald next it makes no sense at all and it still puzzles me to this day like 20 years later he looks at Norm Macdonald and he goes he goes uh, you, you have the personality of a dead moth which is funny but then he goes 
why don't you get a horse and go live in the mountains somewhere so that you won't bother anyone? I was like, what? Like, that's that's the line? Like, more sense than the moth. Like, at least a dead moth is still fuzzy. I don't know. It, it was, it's strange. It's funny. But uh, but there's a lot of uh, weird... Bob Saget directed that movie. Huh. Dirty Work. I didn't think I would be talking about Dirty Work this much. But I wanted to <laughs> close on one thing about Michelle Wolf is that I had known Michelle... Since uh, she had done, been doing open mics, she was, when I first started doing open mics, a lot, like before I, I got the FMU show, around the time, um, she was at every mic. She was at every single open mic. And a lot of times, when I realized, like, early on, like, oh, you have to hit a few, uh, like, back-to-back. You have to strategically go to one, then bounce to another, something that Nick still practices, uh, you know, multiple times <laughs> a week. But, like, I would see her at the Alligator Lounge on 14th Street, oh, yeah. and I would see her, like, bomb. But, like, there was something there. And then I would – we she would be on my walk to the pit on 24th. Like, it was just, like, one after the other, you know? And so, like, she was one of the people, like, was that was always at the mic, always writing and trying jokes. And, like, you know, she's there. She's, yeah. like, a, now a household name. Yeah. And it's huge and it's awesome. And she can work – blue. I think she's just lost her Netflix show, which is so stupid. It was a great show. It's like really stupid, but it's the uh, of being a household name, like bleach is a household product and it can be used to clean or to kill. <laughs> that was my only thing. No, it's good though. Like, it depends whose house it is. Like, a normal person's house, they're going to use it to clean. A psycho. <laughs> use it to... But yeah, she's in everybody's TV, which is incredible. Just like bleach. Just like bleach. I don't have any bleach in my house, just in case. I don't you know, either. You know, We've seen sharp objects. A, a new survey shows that. Uh, more Americans watch television than any other appliance. <laughs> that is a Steve Martin joke that he... It, it's not even his joke, but he he used it to get on the Smothers Brothers as a writer. But do you remember the Steve Martin joke where he talks about dating? You know, he doesn't do blue comedy very often. But Steve Martin, you know, he gets on, he gets on stage. Oh, fuck, I'm so bad at telling jokes. And this doesn't happen very often. About three weeks ago, I met a girl. She was real nice, and she invited me to her apartment. So I went over there, and she had the best pussy I have ever... Oh, now, come on! I'm talking about her cat. Now, that makes me sick right there. Now, you can't say anything anymore that people don't take it dirty, and I'm sorry, that disgusts me. That cat was the best fuck I ever had. (laughs) 